Ladies and gentlemen, jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman Report. It's my show now. No, I'm kidding. Joe Hagman here, your co-host, along with Doug Hagman, who will be joining us in just a few minutes. Got a great show lined up for you today. Got a lot we're going to get into. With a number of guests, we have Brandon House, who's going to be joining us in a matter of minutes. And we got a lot we're going to get into with Brandon about the information warfare uh, some media stuff, as well as some interesting news about Venezuela and Antifa. And again, we're going to be getting into information warfare with Brandon. Then, following Brandon, we have a very special guest, Hugh Clark. He is a uh, served in the United States Navy, and he was a member of the Honor Guard that took President Kennedy's body to Arlington Cemetery for burial. And we're going to go back to uh, that day of the Kennedy assassination and go through with Hugh his experience and what he witnessed on that day. Then in hour three, we have each and every Tuesday, Stan Deo, he will be joining us in the third hour. And we got a lot to talk about. Um, a lot of news going on. Folks, if you've been paying attention to the storm, Hurricane Harvey, they are reporting that over 52 inches of rain has fallen in Houston, which is, it, it's smashed all records. It's, um, this is, you know, an historic catastrophic event. It seems that the death toll is relatively low. Um, I know that eight people were confirmed dead by today and there was a family of six missing that they believe had drowned and that's very low for uh, what I believe is one of the worst floods we've seen in U.S. history. Now, it's not, obviously, when I say worst flood, I don't mean the death toll or um, anything like that. I'm talking about the, the devastation and uh, the amount of water that we are seeing. In Katrina, I believe 1,800 or more people were killed as a levee broke after Hurricane Katrina hit, taking many by surprise. Here, we knew that this was coming. But we do have some issues with dams and levees. There have been conflicting reports that a levee had broken. And that report uh, from the local news, they said that that's not the case. But we have two dams in um, Houston, in the city of Houston, that when the town was built and when these dams and reservoirs were built, there were no other houses or uh it was pre pretty much a, a non-populated area. Now you have hundreds of thousands of homes that have filled in all these areas around these reservoirs, and this is where we're seeing the flooding from today, as they're saying that the rivers and streams will not peak for another two days, mean, meaning reach its maximum uh, threshold for, for water or the highest levels of water. We won't see that for two days, and the the two reservoirs that are there, the Attics Reservoir, and then there's another one uh, right next to it. But when this system was designed, it was not designed uh, with 
homes and businesses all around the reservoirs. It was kind of far away on the eastern side of the city. Well, now it's a very populated area, and it could be disastrous if the reservoirs were to collapse or fail. But either way, water at the attic's reservoir, which is 19 miles west of downtown, went over the top of the 108-foot spillway for the first time in history. Now, the high, the, the spillway is 108 feet. The highest level it's ever reached was 100 feet. And now it is at 108.6 or 85 feet. So we have water that is being released from the reservoir in order to help minimize the flooding um, is now not being released fast enough to where the water is spilling over. So you have this uh, situation that's ongoing that is, as local meteorologists say, is something we've never seen before. And they say the water is going to continue to increase for the next few days and to get out now and to leave immediately if you live around those those dams. One of the really interesting feel-good stories about this Hurricane Harvey is what some are calling the Cajun, the Cajun Navy. Either way, it's a group of civilians who have come together to help rescue their fellow citizens. And I think this really speaks to the, you know, when we talk about what is America, I think this speaks to, you know, the true nature of Americans and America. When we see disasters like this happen, people coming together, whether it's giving, donating supplies or money, uh, or mobilizing in uh, with their small boats and water vehicles, in order to go rescue their their neighbors and fellow citizens, this spirit of community and and love for each other, that's what America is all about. And no matter how much the media continues to try to, you know, divide us along racial lines, political lines, economic lines, this is what America at its heart is all about. Folks, if you go on Drudge, you will see a whole laundry list of headlines about the flood flood of a lifetime, you know, new records. Uh, many shelters are at capacity already. Louisiana is starting itself to, to flood in certain areas. Um, we have law enforcement. They are uh, finding themselves facing off with looters, and that's pretty crazy, people obviously uh, looting. And, you know, there's a whole host of, of um, on every cable news station and on much of the Internet, you can find updates, live stream cameras of Houston, the reservoirs, the rescue efforts, it's all there. But keep these people in your prayers as this is going to be an ongoing disaster for a number of weeks and months, I imagine, for many of the the worst affected areas. One more headline. Folks, go to HagmanReport.com. Bookmark the site. Uh, There's a lot of interesting stories up there. One of the latest ones we just posted, FBI says lack of public interest in Hillary emails justifies withholding documents. Hillary Clinton's case isn't interesting enough to the public to justify releasing the FBI's files on her, the Bureau said this week, in rejecting an open records request by a lawyer seeking to have the former Secretary of State punished for perjury. Ty Clevenger, the lawyer, has been trying to get Mrs. Clinton and her personal lawyers disbarred for their handling of her official emails during the time as Secretary of State. He's met with resistance among lawyers, and now his request for information from the FBI's files has been shut down. You have not sufficiently demonstrated that the public's interest in disclosure outweighs personal privacy interests of the subject, according to FBI Records Management Section Chief David Hardy. It is crazy uh, that they're using this defense to 
keep the public eyes off of her emails. And the lawyer says, I'm just stunned. This is exactly what I would have expected if Mrs. Clinton had won the election, but she didn't. It looks like the Obama administration is still running the FBI. That uh, comment is right on the money. It looks like the Obama administration is not only still running the FBI, but much of the White House. We have with us our guest, Brandon House. Brandon, it's great to have you back on. I know we got. Thank you. I know we got a lot to get into tonight. Um, We're going to start with Walter Cronkite, um, where where we see this. You know, uh, the mainstream media has completely went off the reservation. Fake news is a tag that they're being called. What role did Walter Cronkite play in all this? Well, that's a great question as we talk about information operations tonight. And if you're military or former military, information operations is a term you're very familiar with. Uh, And uh, an information operations has been really performed on America. It's psychological subversion. It's uh, an information war. It's propaganda. It's what we now have come to call fake news. But it's much, much more... um, Dangerous than just saying, well, they're putting out fake stories. There's actually a rhyme and a reason to it. There's an agenda. And Walter Cronkite is a perfect example of someone that uh, I think was used by the communist agenda. Uh, it's a matter of historical fact what he reported about Vietnam. You can go online and type in Walter Cronkite and uh, how he helped America lose the Vietnam War. And there are many experts that believe what he was saying about the Vietnam War what he was reporting about the Vietnam War, did indeed turn the hearts of many Americans against winning that war against the communists. And uh, many uh, people can go and see some great writing by people like Cliff Kincaid of Accuracy and Media and others, uh, where Walter Cronkite for years, even after getting off television, and remember, he is at one time one of the most trusted men in America. And Brennan, but he was, if yeah. I can, um, one of the, the more famous quotes that, uh, Cronkite's known for since his retirement. And folks, if you have not seen this, just search on YouTube, Walter Cronkite, Satan. He made a quote uh, about the New World Order, about Pat Robertson saying we couldn't establish a New World Order until the return of Jesus. And Walter Cronkite says, um, well, if that's the case, join me as I sit at the right hand of Satan, something along those lines, and was laughing and joking about it. And um, that's just one of, of several videos that reveal his true nature of what kind of person he was, the gatekeeper that he was for this New World Order system. Well, he promoted many things that would undermine America's sovereignty. Cliff Kincaid and some other guys have written some great articles showing you the internationalism, the statism, the globalism uh, that he was pushing, which would undermine America's national sovereignty. So, yeah, I mean, Walter Cronkite was really one of the first people to push fake news. But I believe it's, again, more insidious than just calling it fake news. It's, it's an information operations, and it's been going on in America for a very long time. I, I think, quite frankly, to set this whole interview up, the best thing to do is to play a clip that I sent you guys, um, and let me set it up for you. This is a former KGB officer that defected, and he came to America. And in the mid-1980s, you can tell by his dress and the quality of the uh, – video we're about to see. It's, it's an old video. It's from the mid-1980s. And you can find the ento- entire one-hour presentation as he teaches in front of a blackboard on, on YouTube and watch. But he's explaining in the clips that I want to play tonight to set up what we're going to talk about. 
how the KGB and the communists have been involved in psychological subversion, an information war, uh, in, uh, information operations, propaganda, fake news for a long time. And that, in fact, the communists and the Marxists spent more effort and time on fake news and information operation than they did in traditional espionage, like stealing the planes, uh, the plans for a, a bomber or whatever else they might try to steal that would fall under the category of traditional espionage. They only spent about 15% of their time doing that. 85% of their time, he says, was spent on psychological subversion, pumping information into the American media and into education to brainwash the American people. And it really goes to the idea of the art of war. The supreme art of war is subdue the enemy without fighting. And that's what you see has happened in America with the embracing of social justice, socialism, redistribution of wealth, fundamentally transforming America, white privilege, which is anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-capitalism, anti-family. Um, all these things have different names, but it's communism. It's neo-Marxism, but it's been perpetrated to the point now we have what? These protesters in the street, they've, they've gone through an educational system that has taught them that the source of all suffering and oppression is Christianity and capitalism, right? Well, how do you do that? You have an information operation for education and media, which really goes back to the Frankfurt School that we talked about last time I was on your program. But then you bring it forward to the Vietnam War, from 1933 to the Vietnam War. And I'll show you a quote in a minute where one former high-ranking man, probably the highest-ranking uh, a KGB officer, Soviet military intelligence officer to ever defect, admitted admitted that the communists spent over a billion dollars, over a billion dollars uh, on America and information operations to turn the hearts of Americans against the Vietnam War, which is how you have then Americans spitting on servicemen who would come home from Vietnam, spit on them and call them baby killers. Because people like, I think, uh, Walter Cronkite helped to carry out an information operation, turn the hearts of the American people, then the politician licks their fingers, sticks it in the air, and then they pull out of Vietnam or they don't fight Vietnam like they should and win. Same thing really happened in the uh, Korean War, and we'll, we'll get into that. But what are we suffering the consequences of today? North Korea, the communists having won. So this KGB officer explains this information operation, and I think it sets up our conversation tonight if you guys want to roll that clip. Absolutely, Brandon. And this guy, uh, he did another video on, it was, I think it was the, the four planks, uh, destabilization, demoralization, normalization, and it's a very famous clip from the 80s, and I believe yeah. this is separate from that, but this is a, a is. very insightful clip, so folks, please uh, pay attention and, and watch this. Uh when what I'm going to talk about now has absolutely nothing to do with the cliché of espionage or KGB activity of collecting information. So the greatest mistake or mis mis misconception, I think, is that uh, whenever we are talking about KGB for some strange reason, uh, starting from Hollywood movie makers to professors of political science, and quote-unquote experts on, on Soviet affairs or Kremlinologists as they call themselves they think that the most desirable thing for Andropov and the whole KGB is to steal blueprints of some supersonic jet bring it back to Soviet Union and 
sell it to the Soviet military industrial complex. It's only partly true. If, if, if we take <clears throat> the whole time, money, and manpower that the Soviet Union and KGB in particular spends outside of USSR border, we will discover, of course there are no official statistics unlike with CIA or FBI, that the espionage as such occupies only 10 to 15 percent of money, time, and manpower. 15 percent of the activity of KGB. The rest 85 percent is always subversion. And unlike a dictionary of English, Oxford Dictionary, Subversion in Soviet terminology means always a destructive, aggressive activity aimed to destroy the country, nation, or geographical area of your enemy. So there's no romantics in there, absolutely. No blowing up bridges, no microfilms in Coca-Cola cans, nothing of that sort. No James Bond nonsense. It's most of the, this activity is overt, legitimate, and easily observable if you give yourself time and trouble to observe it. The theory of subversion goes all the way back 2,500 years ago. The first human being who formulated the tactics of subversion was a Chinese philosopher by the name of Sun Tzu. To 2,500 years B.C. He was an advisor for several imperial courts in, in ancient China. And he said, after long meditation, that to implement, foreign, uh, to implement state policy in a warlike manner, it's the most counterproductive, barbaric, and inefficient to fight on a battlefield. You know that war is continuation of state policy, right? So if you want successfully to implement your state policy, and you start fighting, this is the most idiotic way to do it. The highest art of warfare is not to fight at all, but to subvert anything of value in the country of your enemy until such time that the perception of reality of your enemy is screwed up to such an extent that he does not perceive you as an enemy and that your system, your civilization and your ambitions look to your enemy as an alternative if not desirable then at least feasible better red than dead that's the ultimate purpose the final stage of subversion, after which you can simply take your enemy without a single shot being fired. If the subversion is successful. This is basically what subversion is. And there you have it, folks. Uh, sound familiar? Yeah. That's exactly what's going on. And, and, and again, this gentleman defected, and uh, he did. He's the one that in the mid-'80s went on to talk about the four stages of uh, psychological subversion, information operations, information war, propaganda war. Demoralize, destabilize, chaos, and then normalize. Mm -hmm. You demoralize. 
You go into a, a nation and you remove any morality, any values, you attack the foundational Western worldview. Well, what is that called? Multiculturalism. Multiculturalism is not the study of multiple cultures. It is a denigration of the foundational Western worldview, uh, largely a, a, a Christian ethic and capitalism, really coming out of the uh, uh, second generation Reformation, many of the colonies. Uh, they fooled around with socialism. It didn't work. Bradford writes about this in his uh, diary. Uh, they went with the biblical concept of if you don't work, you don't eat, of putting your hand up the plow, gaining wealth over the course of time. So the free market system is a Christian ethic system, and the way you destroy the family, government, economics, law, is through opposing that foundational worldview upon which a constitutional republic is based. Uh, William Blackstone, one of the leading scholars of the Founding Fathers, was asked, what is a constitutional republic? He said, well, whatever the divine is ruled on, we don't rule against. So you must denigrate the foundational Western worldview. That's how you demoralize. That That is multiculturalism, which is, again, one of the things that was taught by the Frankfurt School that came here to America in 1933 that I deal with in my book, Grave Influence, that didn't get at our bookstore. And um, my bookstore is wvwtv.com forward slash bookstore, wvwtv.com forward slash bookstore, and they can get it. And that game was written in 2008, came out in 2009. Well, that's what the Frankfurt School wanted when they came to America, and that's what you have with this uh, subversion or psychological um, subversion is you, demo you demoralize, as this former KGB officer says in another clip. Once you've demoralized, you've destroyed any kind of foundation for morality, law, the constitutional republic, passing that on to a generation after generation, that creates chaos. So you demoralize and you destabilize. Once you've destabilized everything economically, swelling the welfare rolls, collapsing the system, uh, you just completely destabilize society, then you have chaos. Demoralize, destabilize, chaos. We're now in the chaos. We're now in the chaos stage, I believe. And what you see going on in Charlottesville and all these other things going on in the streets and all these George Soros-funded paid protesters, this is nothing more than that, that chaos. And it's going to get worse, I'm afraid. Uh, there's a great article over at AmericanThinker.com today on this as well. And I believe that what you're seeing in uh, Charlottesville and in the streets of America with these pro paid protesters, and I believe that's what they are, these Antifa, anti-fascists, which is so interesting because they are the fascists. Mm -hmm. They want to censor. They want to eliminate. They want to stop free speech, freedom of expression. We see Facebook wanting to mark legitimate news stories as potentially fake news when it's not. We see YouTube criticizing and putting things on our, our uh, YouTube channel saying this may not be appropriate for all advertisers. And all we're doing is explaining Marxism and Islam. We see the censoring that's going on to try to stop free expression of ideas, the free, the free enterprise system as well. So I, it's funny they want to call themselves anti-fascist when I believe many of these groups are indeed the fascist system. And we have emerging a big government with big business for corporate fascism. But this smells a lot like the 1930s, when you had the brown shirts, a paramilitary group, running around for Adolf Hitler, stirring up problems, beating up the opposition, intimidating the opposition. And this was the group that really helped Hitler come to power, your brown shirts, a paramilitary group of young people that were very immoral, if you go back and study their history. But this really helped lay the foundation for Hitler. They were obviously uh, the National Socialist Workers' Party, a former fascist 
as well. So anyway, today you have these people running around claiming to be anti-fascist when they really are fascists. That's always what the liberals do. They say there's something that they're not. What they say that we are is actually what they are. Yeah, they and project. And so they're around today with, 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 with shields, hats, clubs, helmets, almost have a, a black clothes, almost a paramilitary look to these people. And they go in there and they stir up problems to create the chaos. Look for this to continue. The Democrat Party is behind it, I believe. George Soros and such groups are behind it, I believe. The Democrat Party is doing nothing to condemn it. The Republican Party is not in any way standing up with this president to condemn it. In many ways, they're going along with it. So I believe this chaos is going to continue. You demoralize, you destabilize, you create chaos. Then the government takes advantage of the chaos, rushes in with more government, implements more laws that end up shackling you and me. In fact, even here in Memphis, where I live, one of the city councils is looking at a resolution to deal with bigotry and racism and I'm opposed to bigotry and racism, but we already have laws on the books to deal with that. And their resolution in this so-called conservative Republican town next door to me, the resolution is written so vaguely, it could mean that I can't broadcast or write or speak against Islam. And now we also have two Muslim groups working with Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill to make it punishable by law to criticize a religious minority. So, And who's behind that? Two Muslim groups. So what you're going to see is the chaos. Then they'll rush in, pass legislation that supposedly addresses the problem. The problem is going to be Christianity, capitalism, free market. Uh, look them to throw, throw the Jews in there if they can, because they're always going to have to go after the Jews. And th that sets up the normalization of the prosecution, hate crime laws and other things. Demoralize, destabilize, chaos, and then you normalize the new, this is now the new norm. But... There was another guy that was high-ranking who defected as well. This guy was probably the highest-ranking Soviet military intelligence officer to ever uh, defect, and he wrote a book called Through the Eyes of the Enemy. Here's what he wrote. What will be a great surprise to the American people is that the Soviet military intelligence, known as the GRU and KGB, had a larger budget for anti-war propaganda in the United States than it did for economic and military support for the Vietnamese. So in other words, they spent more money pumping uh, garbage into the U.S. to turn the minds of the American people against fighting the communists. So they spent a lot of money. The anti-war propaganda cost the Soviet military intelligence more than $1 billion, but as history shows, it was a political warfare and U.S. strategic uh, battle. So they spent over a billion dollars, and it was hugely successful campaign and well worth the cost. The anti-war sentiment created an incredible momentum that greatly weakened the U.S. military. And uh, this this is one reason why we lost Vietnam. And so what do we see now? The same thing going on. A fake news turning the hearts of the American people against the president who's trying to build a wall, build a border, deal with the illegals, deal with terrorism, uh, deal with Black Lives Matter. There's nothing more than a communist front group, I believe. Uh, even one of their people admits that they were mentored by Eric Mann, formerly with the Weather Underground. We now have reports. We cannot verify these reports, but we have reports that potentially uh, some of these Antifa folks are down in Venezuela uh, getting uh, paramilitary training, bomb-making training, to come back here to America and carry out some of this. And Brandon, now, we already i, I got to yeah. ask you this. Uh, you know, I saw two months ago reports, now it was just speculation at the time, there was no evidence that I saw to back up these claims, but they there were reports that Antifa was training in Syria 
Now, whether that's people actually going to Syria and training, or if that's, you know, former ISIS or, you know, intelligence officers posing as ISIS coming back to be an Antifa, I'm not sure. But where did you get this information from about Venezuela? Well, this came through some of my guys that are heavily tied into guys that are in special forces, and these guys were downline, special ops guys downline, downrange, and uh, they turned around and shared it with me. And uh, uh, we have some other sources we're working now to try to, to uh, confirm this. It may be difficult to confirm, so we're not stating it as fact, but what we are saying is we're, we're getting some hints that that could be what's going on. Now, think about this. I don't know if you guys have the video clip. I should have sent it to you, but the... the uh, Central Intelligence Agency director, the director of the CIA, he was on with Chris Wallace on Fox News recently, and he admitted that Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah are all working in Venezuela. Russia, Iran, and Hezbollah are all working in Venezuela. That's some pretty bad dudes. Now, if we've got Americans going down there, getting paramilitary training, how to bomb-making training to come back here, that's a real problem. By the way, let me just say about Venezuela. I don't know how many of your uh, folks know this. We've been tracking this now since at least 2014. And, and most Americans don't know what I'm about to tell you. I mean, you can find it. It's out there. But most Americans just aren't reading enough to know. But it's it's in lots of news sources you'll find if you put it in your search engine. Venezuela has been working with Iran to build a missile launching system in northern Venezuela for quite some time. We're talking about intercontinental ballistic missiles. Now, listen. North Korea has just launched another missile that went 1,700 miles, flew over the top of Japan. I think that's the first time they've flown a missile over Japan now in a decade. So this thing is really ratcheting up. Now, they have nuclear, uh, or uh, the, the launching system to probably reach the U.S. Peter Pry, who's been a guest of yours, a regular guest of ours, we carry his columns. Peter Pry's been saying this for a long time, along with uh, uh, the former director of the CIA, James Woolsey. And that should concern us. But why are we not hearing people more concerned about the fact that Venezuela is supposedly working with Iran, according to open news sources, building an intercontinental ballistic missile firing system, missile launching system, in northern Venezuela near Caracas, uh, puts it about 1,364 miles from Miami. And now the CIA, and we've been talking about that since at least 2014. Now you have the CIA director coming out in the last couple of weeks on Chris Wallace's Fox News saying, yeah, and by the way, Iran, Russia, and Hezbollah are in Venezuela. We could be seeing another Cuban missile crisis type scenario, but the American people are, are, are seem to be oblivious to it. And I'm quite concerned when you have the Russians uh, and you have the I Iranian or what we really should call Islamic Revolutionary Guard here in the U.S. Peter Pry, former CIA officer, chairman of the EMP Congressional Commission, says he believes there are perhaps hundreds, if not thousands, perhaps thousands of Islamic Revolutionary Guard members already here in the U.S. And you combine the fact that we have these very nations, the Marxists and Muslims, that want to bring down America, you now have those very Muslim Hezbollah, Islamic groups Hezbollah, as well as the Iranians, Muslims, and the Russians, Communist, all working in Venezuela. So again, we're, we're in a big problem right now, and the American people don't realize it, because again, the news is being turned away from fighting the enemy to thinking that the enemy is really Americans, conservatives, Christians, uh, Jewish people, with all the anti-Semitism anti that's rising in America. And to me, it's smelling a lot like 
the 1930s Germany. And sadly, in Germany, there was about 14,000 so-called evangelical pastors. And only about 800 would stand up to Hitler. The rest of them didn't want to do anything. And yet Dietrich uh, Bonhoeffer, who was part of this movement, the Confessing Church, to go against the Nazis, they ended up hanging him with a piano wire. His pastor buddy, uh, Martin Niemöller, they threw him into a concentration camp. He survived and ended up getting out and going and living in Canada and since passed away. But Martin Niemöller said, look, there were 14,000 pastors. If they had stood up, those evangelical pastors had stood up, maybe only 10, 000, some 10,000 would have died, not 5 million Jews, 6 million non-Jews. And yet what do we see today? Instead of the evangelical pastors standing up to this movement, we have these useful idiots like John Piper. I think John Piper is a perfect useful idiot. Um, he's supposedly on the conservative right side of evangelicalism, yet here he is tweeting, if Black Lives Matter matters, know why from their own website, blacklivesmatter.com. And why is this so-called Bible conservative tweeting about Black Lives Matter? Here's another useful idiot, I believe, another guy on the right, a neo-Calvinist, I believe. Matt Chandler, what's he writing about? White privilege. What's another word for white privilege? Your communist ideology, just wrapped in another term. And what does he say to the Christian Post back in 2012? He says that um, we need to think about uh, our whiteness. You have to address white privilege, and white people don't know that there's privilege that we have because our whiteness of our whiteness. So when they hear that, they uh, that they get real offended. Like black people just need to get over the past and move on. And he goes on to give an example and uh, whatnot. Uh, this is a real problem. Uh, this is playing right into the the uh, diversion, the sub, the information operation. America, bad place. European people, Christians, uh, racist, capitalism, and yet I believe now instead of seeing pastors stand up to this Islamo-fascism, this Islamo-Nazism, and the neo-Marxist, the Marxists and the Muslims, many of them are playing right into their hand. Why? Uh, perhaps maybe they're educated beyond their intelligence. Perhaps they've bought the lie of the information operation. I don't know. But you would think that the, even the so-called conservative Bible right could pull their head out of their armpit and start fighting this for what it is because the goal is eventually to shut down churches and Christians and Christian radio and conservative radio, and yet what do you see? So-called people on the right and so-called Bible right pastors using their talking points. And that's exactly what happened in Germany according to Martin Niemöller, that 14,000 some odd evangelical pastors did nothing, and we saw what happened. So you have the players, very similar to 1930s. The pastors don't want to say anything. They don't want to do anything largely. Some do, but most don't. You have now instead of Nazism, you have Islamo-Nazism, Muslim mm -hmm. Brotherhood running over the country, which they were involved in the final solution of Hitler, working with Hitler in the final solution, Muslim Brotherhood. You have the uh, basically the brown shirts, if you will, running around in a paramilitary group, intimidating people, beating people up, acting as a paramilitary thug group of people. And uh, now we're moving toward a, a fascist system where big government, big business are merging, a corporate fascism. And now they, who do they have in their sights? They have in their sights the Christians and the capitalists because that's the source of all suffering and oppression, which, by the way, all came out of Germany through some Marxist uh, who came here to America in 1933. So maybe we're connecting some dots. I hope tonight we're helping people understand that all this fake news and the media and education has played right into an information war, propaganda. Repeat a lie often enough and people believe it. Yep. The whole goal is to defeat your enemy, subdue your enemy without having to fight. No, you're exactly right. And this Antifa... 
you know, the, these people, uh, you know, they're, they are anarchists. Uh, but what they really are doing is, is through chaos, they are worshiping Satan and they are, um, invoking, uh, you know, mayhem and, uh, unrest. And they are the exact definition of what a terrorist is trying to, using violence for political, uh, goals. And we see this, this movement. Finally, the left wing media is starting to call them out a little bit. And, uh, that's better than nothing, I guess. But we know that there is a, overarching agenda here that is at play through what the clip that you just played, the uh, destabilization, the chaos, and then normalization. You just talked about information warfare, Brandon. How would you de- define information warfare? Well, I got a, an article from, I went researching this last week on my TV show. This is my TV show this week I'm giving to you guys here. And um, I found this article from the Military View, July to August 2011, by a, gener- a brigadier general called information operations, and he says that information operations is confidently managing it is, is what it is, confidently managing information that affects the population's attitudes and beliefs. So attitudes, beliefs. Uh, confidently managing information that affects the population's attitudes and beliefs is a decisive element of successful counterinsurgency. In U.S. military doctrine, we refer to this effort as information operations. Information operations are active activities undertaken by military and non-military organizations to shape the essential narrative of a conflict or situation and thus affect the attitudes and behaviors of the targeted audience. And so it can be used for good going into a country that's maybe say you go in and you, you take over a country that's had a ruthless dictator and you try to win the hearts and minds of the people and maybe even some of the insurgents to come and Look, we're here to help you stabilize your government, get your people to understand how to rule and run a legitimate government, establish it, and then we back out. And so you carry on an information operation to win their hearts and minds. So it can be used for good, but it can also be used for evil. And that's exactly what an information operation is, the KGB, as we heard from Yuri talking about in the mid-1980s. And this information operation goes all the way back, really, to, to, as I said, education and media, the two targets the Frankfurt School set out to go about in 1933. And the Reese Commission, you guys, you guys know about the Reese Commission? Do you remember that? No, I'm not familiar with that. Well, there was a committee from 1952 to 1954. Uh, it was run by Edward E. Cox and Carol Reese, and it came to be known as the Reese Commission. And it came out in 1954, the Reese Commission. You can look it up online and see it for free, lots and lots and lots of pages. But there's a guy that wrote about the Reese Commission, and basically what they did was a study before it was shut down, the committee was shut down, to look at the very powerful liberal, globalist, uh, internationalist, neo-Marxist, uh, tax-exempt foundations, and how they were trying to influence America, American public policy, education. And Joseph Douglas, writing on it, says that what they found, this committee was that the growth of an, there was a growth of an insidious network of leftists under the patronage of the major tax-exempt foundations. This network had infiltrated both the education system and the government. The clear purpose of this network, or interlocked cabal as they would call it, was to control the marketing of ideas and through these ideas to introduce social change. Change in, that, in the committee's eyes was not in our interest. It was not in our interest as a nation. Indeed, they even ended up calling it subversive. This is just like a subversive psychological warfare Yuri was talking about in that video, the former KGB officer. And how right they were. The changes being orchestrated by this cabal can now be seen to lie at the heart of the major social, economic, and political problems America is experiencing today. 
The findings of the Reese Commission were published in December 1954. The principal conclusion was directed, direct and unequivocal. A cabal consisting of leftist intellectuals, social science organizations, and the big tax-exempt foundations had come into existence. Their objective was to destroy the American culture and the way of life, introduce socialist and Marxist ideas, often under deceptive garb, seize control of our government's policy apparatus, and place themselves in charge. Deep state, if you will, folks, right? He says there were two main thrusts in the cabal strategy. The first was to use the American education system to promote the desire for social change in the public's mind. That is, to change the thinking and behavior of our youth and young adults. The second was to infiltrate the government and use it to start implementing the social changes, in quote. And you know what's very interesting? Now, this was in 1952 to 54, and the report came out in 54. But in the 1980s, early 1980s, Ronald Reagan commissioned a report of the state of education. And it was called A Nation at Risk. My second book that I wrote in the early 90s was called A Nation at Risk. It was about the state of education. That's how I came up with his name. And the report, after they studied the state of education in America, it was given to President Reagan. And if anyone goes and looks up A Nation at Risk, the education report, you know what they said? That the state of our education, the mediocrity of our education, and the state of our educational system in America was so bad that if another nation had done to our educational system what we ourselves have done, we might very well consider it an act of war. We might consider it an act of war. Well, this goes, that was in the early uh, 1980s. I think it was 83. Well, this goes back to the 1950s. But you know what the result of this information operation and undermining our educational system and changing the worldview and values of our young people is? Well, it goes all the way back to the 1940s where this was going on. And by the 1950s, we were in something called the Korean War. And there was a study done because uh, so many of our young uh, POWs were giving in. They were giving in. That a study was actually done. Why are our POWs giving in? And what they found is that within the early stages of captivity, four out of every ten Americans died. They gave up. What they went on to find out was through the Army conducting a study, a Major William Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R, William Mayer, a U.S. Army psychologist, participated in this lengthy study. And why was it that our soldiers with no drugs, no torture, no psychological coercion, were willingly collaborating with the communists? You know why? The study found out because they didn't know their history. They didn't know the foundation of our country's worldview, nor the purpose of the standing military they served in. And the communists there in North in Korea were using a an outline, a little curriculum. The little curriculum to denigrate America was actually developed out of New York, a communist school out of New York. And the communists in the Korean War were using this to teach this garbage to the American servicemen who had no knowledge by which to refute the lies. And so they would either give up and die or actually become so demoralized they would pick up their buddy bodily and throw him out in the snow in 30 below weather when they got dysentery and, and, and couldn't stand a stench anymore. And so they fell apart. Now this was the Korean War. Of course, the, we lost that war, didn't we? And what are we dealing with now? North Korea. But this was in the 1950s. We had service people who didn't know enough about their own form of government and values to withstand 
the propaganda, the information operation, the propaganda war, the information war of the communists, and they weren't even torturing them to do this, drugged or psychological uh, some, you know, techniques. This was just simply putting information at them that was false, and they couldn't stand, withstand it. In fact, one of the people writing for the uh, volunteer army, the Chinese people volunteer army, said the American soldier has weak loyalty to his family, his community, his country, his religion, and to his fellow soldiers. This report fell into the hands of the Americans. His concepts of right and wrong are hazy and ill-formed. Opportunism is easy for him. By himself, he feels frightened and insecure. He underestimates his own worth, his own strength, his own ability to survive. There is little understanding of American political history and philosophy, the federal, state, and community organizations, state and civil rights, freedom, safeguards, checks and balances, and how these things allegedly operate within his own system, end quote. It goes on to say, quote, he fails to appreciate the meaning of and necessity for military or any other form of organization, end quote. That was about our, our U.S. servicemen in the early 1950s. And again, the study was backed up by Major William Mayer, a U.S. Army psychiatrist who, who did this long study. By the way, the Turks, 229 of them survived when they were captured in Korea and subjected to the same treatment, but guess what happened? They, they, they all survived to a man. To a man, all 229 of them survived and marched right back through the gates of uh, the POW camp and went home. Now, a lot of this is detailed in a book called None Dare Call It Treason, None Dare Call It Treason, written by John Stormer, who's a friend of mine. He wrote this book uh, over 60 years ago, and Ronald Reagan, he told me, used to buy it from him by the case. He knew Ronald Reagan. He met him in the 60s when they were both working with uh, uh, Barry Goldwater's campaign. Reagan bought it by the case. We'd send him a check, and he'd ship him cases of it, and he'd give it out. None dare call it treason, but people can find it. That's the 25th anniversary edition, and this book is sold, by that point, 7 million copies. So he details that there. So this shows you that this goes back a long way, and it always comes back to an information operation. And that's what's going on with the American people right now. Their right. hearts and minds are being turned against their own form of government, the, the 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 enemies of America are now the victims, the the Marxists, the Muslims, social justice, and don't forget that now we have comes in not only the Marxists but now comes in the Muslim Brotherhood. So now the Marxists and Muslims are working together to destroy America. And don't forget what the 1991 uh, explanatory memorandum said that was found in a sub-basement in Northern Virginia, it was written in 1991, found in 2004, entered into federal trial, the Holy Land trial. What did the Muslim Brotherhood say? They said their goal was to destroy America from within with our own miserable hands, to destroy our miserable house with our own hand. yeah. hands, to sabotage America from within by our own hands. Americans doing it. And, Brennan, uh, the, the resignation of Sebastian Gorka in his resignation letter, he talked about how uh, the mention of radical Islamic terror uh, was was shied away from and uh, that the Islamic anti-American forces were you know still de facto controlling the White House through the Obama holdovers one thing that Islam as a religion as a goal has in common with Antifa and the way Antifa puts it is this notion of peace through violence now now Islam they will you know convert or die uh, is their motto basically the same thing? You know they'll have. Well, they peace. say there's no peace until you surrender. You know, exactly. Islam's all, they say there's no peace until you've surrendered. Then you'll have peace. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, don't forget we have one of the Islamic leaders on video saying Black Lives Matter is now our matter. Black Lives Matter is now our matter. 
They go on to say, we had a revolution in the Middle East, why can't we do it in America? But instead of enforcing the federal law for subversion, for the attempt of overthrowing our form of government, for treason, our laws aren't being enforced. What are people talking about instead? Yeah. People are talking about passing laws to criminalize those <laughs> speaking truth about Islam. Think about that. Yep. Instead of enact, enforcing the laws on the books now to deal with Muslim terrorist groups in America, Muslim Brotherhood, CARE, Islamic Society of North America, Hamas, all these groups who have openly stated what their goal is and was even entered into a federal trial of the Holy Land experience, instead of dealing with the Marxist, the criminals, the Antifa groups that are just neo-Marxist groups, which are doing the bidding of the globalists because they don't want to dirty their hands with this, but they allow the Marxists and the Muslims to do this. They let them off the chain. They let them bring the chaos, and then you watch the globalists march in and bring in the legislation. I hope your audience understands what I just said. The yeah. globalists are using the Marxists and Muslims, letting them off the chain to create the chaos. Then the globalist politicians from both parties walk in and say, oh, we better deal with this chaos, and they start passing legislation, and it usually will criminalize and limit the freedoms of Americans as though the problem are, is those telling the truth. Yep. This is what they're doing. And they're letting the Marxists and Muslims off the leash to do this chaos. So the American people eventually will say, I'm tired of the chaos. I'm afraid. Bring stability. And now you bring in laws that are criminalizing the good people. And you're falling right into the playbook of the bad people. So instead of dealing with the laws in the books to go after the, the, the Islamic terrorist groups in America, the Marxist groups in America... You have politicians who are buying the information operation that what we need to do is pass laws that stop any criticism of religious minorities. It's yeah. Islam. Yeah. So we and they are even say, don't, don't criticize them. Big time. Because the information operation is working. And the enemy is not the Marxists and Muslims. The enemy is now the American people who are trying to speak truth. That's who's becoming the enemy. That's who they'll bring the laws against. And eventually the American people will give up and say, oh, I just can't handle this crime and chaos anymore. Do whatever you got to do. And the globals will step in with more laws, and they use the Marxists and Muslims to bring the chaos to then be the solution. You have to create the chaos to offer up the solution. The change comes from the conflict, Sololinsky. No, you're exactly right. And, you know, one thing that's interesting when you talk about an information warfare and that's exactly what we're seeing, you know, with this mainstream media. The Charlottesville is a great example where the president came out and condoned the violence and the hatred, and then the media turns around and says he never said it. And another thing, you know, this Antifa movement, this anarchist movement, has been creating chaos and, and riots in this country for, you know, eight-plus months now. And only after Charlottesville did we start to see the media actually call it by name and cover it in the press and one thing that they've been doing, uh, we have seen that they have been protecting Antifa, saying, oh, they're trying to protect the values and the fabric uh, of, of America. And they even justified this peace through violence um, segment on, I think it was last Thursday or Friday. And I'm amazed that, you know, they are, as you said, th this information warfare trying to uh, create this chaos as a strategy from the powers that be, these people in Antifa are compartmentalized. They are just thinking that they're going to protest and shut down Nazis and, and you know, anything that they oppose. But what they're really doing is what you just laid out. It's a strategy of the shadow government is to use the chaos that Antifa creates in order to bring down oppressive laws on everybody in the country and use that as a way to bring in their new world order. And that reminds me of the Albert Pike letter of the three world wars. And if you read what he talks about World War Three 
how it starts between between the Jews and the Muslims, and then the anarchists are are released, and basically there's a massive war that uh, takes place where the the Islamists, the anarchists, and the Christians are all wiped out, bringing in a one-world religious order of, to worship Satan. It looks like that that's the blueprint that they are using right now uh, to well, bring about whatever change. This information operation, I mean, here you have Trump, who's trying to drain the swamp, but yet the swamp is in the White House if you still have H.R. McMaster, who, according to Breitbart, has endorsed a book called Jihad Peaceful, Al-Qaeda Terrorism is Simply Resistance. I mean, he's, he's gushing the wow. talking point. Of, of deep state Muslim Brotherhood, and yet when we try to point this out, we point out the dangers of Islam, here comes CNN with Southern Poverty Center now claiming, here's your group of haters, and who's listed in the group of haters? Two guys that sit at this broadcast desk, Sharam Hadian, former Muslim, now Christian pastor, and Usama Dakdok from Egypt. Yeah. Now they're listed on this as haters. No, they're not haters. They're just speaking truth about Islam. So what is the narrative again? What's the information operation? People who are even former Muslims, now Christian pastor, Usama Dakdok, who's from Egypt, speaks Arabic fluently. The, those are now the haters, the ones speaking truth. And, Brandon, and yet, the uh, the slogan that Dave Dobbenmeyer uses is, truth becomes hate speech to those who hate the truth. And that's exactly what well, we're seeing. Actually, you know, Herbert Marcuse, who coined the phrase, make love, not war, was a, a consultant of the students of the, of the 60s, the counterculture revolution, was part of the Frankfurt School. He actually wrote in 1965 in a paper that tolerance is intolerance. Mm -hmm. That that if we really want to have tolerance, we have to be intolerant. And the ones we have to be intolerant of, he said, are those that are not for the expansion of the social welfare system and Christians. And so he said what we have to do is deprive them of their freedom of speech and deprive them of their peaceful assembly. Don't let them assemble. Don't let them speak. If we want to have real tolerance, he said, we must be intolerant. And he labels, again, the conservatives, the Christians, the capitalists, is who they have to be intolerant toward. So, again, I repeat, an information operation is being set up. People are buying it because it's not based on fact, but it's based on emotion. So people are being psychologically manipulated and conditioned to believe that these problems are all the result of a Christian society and capitalism. And that's what Karl Marx said. My aim in life is to dethrone God and destroy capitalism. And so the narrative the media pushes is part of the information operation. The question is, follow the money. Mm -hmm. Who's paying for this? Where is this money coming from? How much is George Soros involved? Who's paying these protesters? Who's continuing to fund the education curriculum? Here in America, (coughs) we played on our radio show last week, audio from a U.S. Department of Education video where they're now teaching open Islam and the five pillars of Islam in American schools with a well-produced curriculum on Islam. They're teaching Islam how to become yep. a Muslim, how to convert. Yep, the There's prayers. no other religion they do that for. No other religion they do that for. Where's the money coming for that? So you have an information operation that is for generations taught socialism, social justice, redistribution of wealth, multiculturalism, a denigration of the foundation of Western worldview, Feminism, anti-family, anti-father, destroy a patriarchal society. Now you have the idea of just a general humanist. This is, again, the Frankfurt School, a general humanist they said they would teach in the 1930s. They're doing that now with all the genders. So they've been at it a long time, the Marxists, the the neo-Marxists, the political correct Frankfurt School guys. But now come along the Marxists who've gotten in the game, and now their money somehow has gotten them into the U.S. Department of Education curriculum. And now your textbooks in America, as we've gone through on TV, 
are filled with lies about Islam, painting it as something it is not, totally whitewashing Islam. And so the young people now are being indoctrinated in Marxist and Muslim ideals. And who is again being set up as the bad people are the Christians, the capitalists, the conservatives. Yep. And it's working, I hate to tell you, and this always starts out non-violently, but eventually turns violent, and I think that's only going to increase, and unfortunately I'm here not to be the bearer of bad news, but to warn of what's coming. People, conservatives and Christians, are being set up. Brandon, Brandon, we are out of time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, folks. Uh, Brandon House, worldviewweekend.com is the website, and uh, we so do appreciate all the updates. And uh, I'll be following up with you, Brandon, on this Venezuela Antifa training, possibly in Venezuela, and send you the stuff I saw in Syria, because I believe this is on this. There is stuff like this going on, and we need to get to the bottom of it as much as possible, folks. Brandon House, thank you so much. We will be right back after these short messages. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to this Tuesday edition of the Hagman Report. Greenovative. Go to HagmanReport.com. Click on the link to Greenovative. But what Greenovative is, it's a small company in Florida. They created something called the GMAG Power Cell. It produces electricity by adding salt water to this unit that recharges rechargeable batteries. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see in your life. It's really neat. Really a, a super device. All right, You need just two teaspoons of ordinary table salt, a little water, but a thing, you're charging your rechargeable batteries. Super GMAG chargeable is affordable. It's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable. It's EMP proof. And it's environmentally friendly. Yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, 6 AA batteries off the grid. When other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night, go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com. Folks, in these uncertain times, it just makes sense to have a sustainable backup method for accomplishing one of life's most important tasks, that's preparing food. This is the way to go. There is nothing better than a Minuteman rocket stove from MinutemanStove.com. We all need a way to cook and a method to process water. I mean, think about it. Think about the many things that could happen to you. Minuteman rocket stove can provide your family or group the perfect solution. It's small, lightweight, wood-burning, and every bit as powerful as a kitchen stove. It's smoke fully self-contained for clean storage and transport. Because it's so efficient, it cuts down on your wood gathering and processing chores to a tenth what would be required if cooking the old-fashioned way over an open fire. So don't rely on gas or fuel stoves. Prepare your family. Prepare for yourself. Order a Minuteman rocket stove today. It's going to make bad times much better. Folks, MinutemanStove.com. MinutemanStove.com. Need I say more? You should have a Minuteman, the survival stove in an ammo can. For investors, Timberland has become the symbol of safety. Global tropical timber demand continues to surge as the world's population increases. The need for managed, sustainable timber production forests has never been greater. When stock markets crash, trees keep growing. Direct ownership of fully managed tropical timberland acreage is now available to accredited investors. Prime, valuable hardwood groves close to the beautiful Costa Rican border generate and maintain superior long-term wealth. 
consider visiting our forest plantations. Qualified accredited investors should go to PreciousTimberProfits.com or dial 855-888-6288 for more information. Call 855-888-6288 or visit PreciousTimberProfits.com. This announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offering made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288, PreciousTimberProfits.com. PreciousTimberProfits.com. And welcome, folks, to this edition of the Hagman Report. It is it is Tuesday, August 29th, 2017. I want to thank Joe for uh, uh, superintending that interview with Brandon House. Well, what a great what a great interview! We've got something special coming up uh, this hour, and uh, I want to thank Bill McIntosh from Acosta Media. Bill McIntosh, Acosta Media, is a class act, and he is. Uh, He's done so many great things to bring all of you, bring us the information. That this hour is going to be a tremendous hour. If if you need a speaker for your event, there's there's one person I recommend. That's Bill McIntosh, Acosta Media, and I'm going to give you his phone number slowly. It is three zero five three nine six two eight zero six. All right. Give him a call, and if you, if you if you are if you have an event that you want to schedule a speaker, he's the man. And I'll, I'll I just again thank you so much, Bill McIntosh. Portions of nice broadcast brought to you by Omaha Steaks. OmahaSteaks.com. You know they have a tremendous business uh, package, uh, gig, uh, business gift package. It, it it's fun to get for yourself even it's even more fun to send because the recipient will just love you more on this later but go to omahasteaks.com and here's the important part type in HH in the search bar that'll bring up the business special for you it's the perfect business gift omahasteaks.com HH in the search bar more on that later but with with respect to Bill McIntosh and um with uh with respect to our guest tonight, our guest coming up is Mr. Hugh Clark. Now Hugh Clark was an honor guard on the honor guard detail following the JFK assassination. When JFK was assassinated, Hugh Clark was assigned to the honor guard detail. In fact he's pictured um He's an African-American gentleman pictured carrying or standing guard and also uh, uh, carrying the casket of JFK. Now think back, folks. We've had Abraham Bolden, who was a, a Secret Service agent, on talking about, uh, among other things, the JFK assassination. We had Clint Hill on. Now Clint Hill was the man, uh, the Secret Service agent, that was climbing on the back of the limousine I believe depicted by Clint Eastwood in the movie JFK, or, or I'm sorry, uh, not JFK, but, uh, one of those in the line of fire, I think it was. Um, or at least implied there. Now we're having Hugh Clark on. 
Hugh Clark's got some things to say. But Hugh, I've got a lot of respect for this man. And the reason, uh, he's written a book called Betrayal. And, uh, in, I'm gonna put a link in the, uh, program description box to this book. I've got a copy of it. It's on my Kindle. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting book. There are, in fact, he, he writes, there are like 244 different conspiracy theorist groups. Not my term, but that's what someone described them as about the JFK assassination in existence out there. That's an interesting fact because this is coming at the uh, assassination from a different angle. Hugh Clark has got a, just an amazing resume. He's got a wonderful story growing up. Of course, uh, he joined the military and, uh, uh, there, of course, he was, he served at that, uh, JFK in the honor guard. And then he uh, joined the NYPD where he worked at 40, at Fort Apache, the Bronx, you know, uh, precinct 41 or the 41 as they called it. That was on uh, Simpson Street, Southern Boulevard, the Bronx, bad neighborhood. That's an understatement. Back in the, back in the days when it was Fort Apache, the Bronx. Um, he retired after 22 years with a gold shield. He's got a, he's got an amazing story to tell. And I remember, I remember as a young man, not a young man, as a, as a child basically, watching the assassination with my parents and watching the, the coverage of the assassination and watching the coverage of the funeral as a young man. So in a way, I almost feel like I'm seeing this man again after 50 plus years. That's kind of how I feel in my heart. But the book Betrayal describes the handling of JFK's body, the caskets and such. Now, you might say, why is this important today? What does this have to do with anything today? You know, here's what I, here's, here's kind of how, what I think. 1963, there was a betrayal of the president. There was a betrayal of the presidency. And there's a betrayal of, of a nation. Perhaps one might say we are where we are today because of events like this in history. You don't get, you don't get closer in my view to event changing history than this. And even equally important, the betrayal of an honor guard. Hence the title of his book, Betrayal. Um, I'm, I'm very excited to, to have Hugh Clark on. I'm very, um, not just excited, but I'm, after reading his book, and I'm not quite through it, all of it yet, under, knowing what he knows will add context, will dispel many of the rumors or the, the 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 notions out there. He, he was an eyewitness to history. Perhaps not necessarily understanding what he saw when he saw it, but at an event at uh, Westmont, Illinois, some fifty plus years after the assassination, and a meeting with others involved in the incident. 
betrayal is the word. Betrayal was what he found out took place on that November weekend, 1963. So I would urge everyone to pay very close attention to this. Uh, this gentleman is a, is a very, very nice man. I have utmost respect for Hugh Clark. Just from reading his book, and I had the opportunity to briefly chat with him today, and he's he's just a great guy. So dispel all of the preconceived notions you have about uh, what you've read about the 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 events following the assassination, and, and let's uh, let's listen to to Hugh Clark, uh, Mr. Clark. Are you there? Yes. Ah. Can you hear me? Okay. We can hear you. We can see you. Thank you so very much for joining uh, oh, joining us tonight. Okay. Wow. I'll tell you something. Again, I, I just in the opening, I, I I said, you know, kind of like you wrote in your book. I remember watching watching you on television in 1963 when I was a young young boy, and so it's kind of like seeing someone uh, 50 years, 50 over 50 years later. Uh, so, uh, hey, it's great to see you again. <laughs> Um, Thank you. But you're the author of Betrayal, and you've got a story to tell about uh, about the JFK assassination and such. And, and I was just telling the audience too. We've had a, a Bolden on, uh, Clint Hill on, interviewed all of uh, uh, interviewed the, those two gentlemen. But uh, you're you're coming at this kind of special because you were uh, an honor guard, and uh, you wrote the book Betrayal: A JFK Honor Guard Speaks. And I think that. The story you've got to tell about the events, especially after the Westmont meeting, when you when you uh, found some things out, is just amazing. Your book is amazing. I love it. But uh, before we get into that, can you just tell the audience a little bit about your history? Because you, you grew up. I, I love the story in your book about your your childhood, your dad, how you yeah, you went to uh, uh, enlisted you know, immediately before Vietnam or as Vietnam was you know taking place. So just inter- just kind of look, let's start out there, and we'll get to we'll get to the Westmont meeting and and beyond. Well, you know, um, as in the book, uh, I, I talk about you know growing up in a large family of uh, eleven sisters and brothers, and my dad was a pastor, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and you know when you have that many kids in a house, it's a handful. And uh, one of the things that uh, we always prided ourselves on was family first. And uh, growing up, you know, when your dad is a pastor, you know, you try to live by the golden rule, or as my mother used to say, uh, she used to hang the strap by the door. And the saying over the strap was, I need thee every hour. You know, meaning, meaning that if some, if someone got out of hand, you know, she always knew where the strap was. But it was a very close knit family. And, uh, as we grew up through the years, um, we were known as the 12th Avenue gang because there were so many of us. <laughs> okay. So 11 brother, 11 siblings you had. Wow. That's. Wow, big family. All right, and you—you you, you were, you were the youngest, right? I was the youngest son. I had uh, there were five 
five boys and six girls. Okay. And uh, as we grew older, um, three of my brothers, my oldest brother went into the Air Force. I had two brothers in the Marine Corps. And uh, my sister and I went into the Navy. So between us, we have almost 50 years of military service in the family. Wow. That's fantastic, and thank you for your service. And I know in your book you write that your your father was none too happy about your enlisting, especially given the um, the, the the time period uh, that that you enlisted. However, that kind of brought you to the events that you experienced in uh, uh, with uh, with the honor guard, and and you you know it's just it, it's a, it's amazing how how decisions and events shape. Uh, future, you know, or the course of our future, and, and that's uh, that's amazing. So uh, let's, because our audience is just, uh, I've been, I'm getting emails saying, "Oh, please tell us about uh, your time in the honor guard, and specifically about the events that you've written about in betrayal." I'm just going to ask you, uh, what uh, what happened? Uh, uh, what was your first experience? When did when did it start? When did uh, your experience with the uh, body of our president John F. Kennedy? Uh, when and how did that start? How did that come about? Well, on 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 this particular day, November twenty second, um, we were all up on. It was a Friday. We were all up on the third deck, as we refer to, as though we were aboard ship. So. Everything that, uh, when you're on shore duty, you refer to everything as if you were aboard ship being in the Navy. So on this particular day, we were all up on the third deck. And that's where we have the television room where we shine our gear, we press our uniforms. But on this particular day, it was nearing Thanksgiving and everybody was, you know, hoping to go home for Thanksgiving. And so we were all up on the third deck early in the early in the morning. We were shining our shoes, trying to get squared away, because uh, we had every intention of going home for Thanksgiving. And shortly before noon, it came over the the uh, television breaking news: President Kennedy has been shot, and everything stopped. I mean, it just seemed on that day uh, prior to the breaking news it was sunshine you know the day was sunny a little chilly but everything seemed to be okay but as soon as that breaking news came over um everybody just knew that you know nobody was going home for thanksgiving or anything else because at that time we didn't know whether or not there had been an assassination attempt by a foreign government or whether uh where it was coming from really but we all knew at that time that you know everything was shut down everybody went on high alert all the bases in the United States and overseas because we just didn't know and shortly thereafter uh when we got the word that the president had passed away uh you know, it was a done deal that nobody was going any place. And again, as I said, it was all the bases in the United States and overseas went on high alert. Mm. 
And while we were watching the uh, TV, trying to get all the news we could out of Dallas, a call came over the PA system, you know, Huey uh, report to the guard office, the honor guard office, which was on the second deck. And uh, I went down, and the commanding officer, who was Lieutenant Commander McNulty, because I was the head of uh, all the pallbearers in the Navy Honor Guard, told me to, you know, saddle up, which means, you know, get dressed in your dress blues, put on your uh, your brass, you know, make sure you're squared away. Someone would be there to pick me up in about a half an hour. I didn't even ask uh, who was coming or where I was going. I just followed the orders. And the next thing I know, um, I was down on the quarter deck. A shore patrol car pulled up. I got in the car. Never asked any questions as to where we were going and what, what I was supposed to do. And, uh, as we drove through Washington going to Andrews Air Force Base, where the, uh, president's plane was to arrive, the streets were empty. I mean, there was nobody on the streets. I guess everybody was home glued to their TV. And uh, as we approached Andrews Air Force Base, I mean, it, it was an armed camp. Mm. Nobody was coming on and nobody was going off. And as we arrived on the tarmac, as we pulled up, I don't think I've ever seen so many people in my life on a military base. But as we pulled up and I exited the uh, the shore patrol car, there were other military personnel, other military honor guards from the different branches of the military. And I was told to report to uh, Lieutenant Byrd, who was in charge of the detail. And when I reported to him, he put me along with uh, five other guys, other other uh, service members that were also in the honor guard. Um, and we were instructed that when the president's remains came down from Air Force One on the elevated truck, we were to remove them off the elevated truck and place them in a Navy ambulance. Now, as this was unfolding, there were many military, you know, service members, you know, admirals, generals, and uh, civilian personnel. I assumed that they were FBI, CIA, Secret Service. But as the elevated truck descended down to uh, our level, as we moved on to take off the remains of the president, we were almost... For lack of a better word, we were, we were assaulted by, you know, members in civilian clothes who we didn't know who they were, but they tried, it was almost as though we were wrestling the casket or the remains of the president from them, at which point the casket almost fell and hit the tarmac. Thank wow. God it didn't, but, uh, we were interfered with. But we were able to place the president's remains in the ambulance, at which time uh, the first lady, Jackie Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and some other dignitaries 
got into the ambulance, at which time we boarded a Army helicopter and we shadowed the Navy ambulance from Andrews Air Force Base all the way to Bethesda Naval Hospital where the autopsy was supposed to take place. But as we neared uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital, we kind of speeded up so we would be in place when the uh, motorcade arrived at the administration building where the morgue was located. And as we arrived at uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital, we were picked up in a pickup truck which brought us around to the uh, administration building on the right side where the motorcade was to pull up and we were going to remove the remains of the president and take them into the morgue. But when the motorcade arrived, we were in place. Uh, the first lady exited the ambulance. Bobby exited. And I believe uh, Robert McNamara. And we waited until they went into the administration building and before we attempted to remove the remains. And once they were inside, the lieutenant who was in charge, Lieutenant Byrd, gave us the signal to move on the ambulance to remove the remains. And as we proceeded forward uh, toward the ambulance, the ambulance just took off. It just sped away. <laughs> and we were stunned for a moment, and then the lieutenant ordered us back into the pickup truck, which was parked right behind us, and we jumped in the back of the pickup truck and started chasing the ambulance. And as we, uh, as it was dark at that time, we followed until we lost sight of the ambulance. It was almost as though they were trying to lose us, but at the same time, you know, the driver knew the grounds of Bethesda Naval Hospital, but we still lost it. And for approximately 15 to 20 minutes, we were going around in circles. We went all the way around to the back of the building where the morgue was located, proceeded back to the front, no ambulance. We went back around. We did this twice. And on the third pass, we pulled up, and the ambulance was located in the back of the uh, in the back of the administration building where the morgue was located at which time we formed up and we proceeded to remove the remains of the president and take them into the morgue and once we brought the remains into the morgue right off the hallway they have what you call the coal locker room where they store the uh, deceased personnel that has passed away waiting for either autopsy or for burial but when we brought the remains of the president in they stopped us at the coal locker room and we didn't actually take the bronze casket into the inner morgue and they never opened the doors while we were standing there and we were instructed to go back out into the hallway and stand guard. And from the time that we stood guard, no other, uh, no other casket came through that door other than 
the mahogany casket that was brought in from Gullah's funeral home after the autopsy was performed. So we never had an opportunity to actually take the bronze casket into the morgue. Um, now, shortly uh, thereafter, was that, the autopsy. I'm sorry, I just want to ask this. Was the bronze casket the same casket that went into the ambulance from Air Force One? Yes. Okay. And the reason, the reason I can say this definitively is because the same casket that we took, uh, off the elevator truck, it had a dent on the top. And on the right side of the casket, the handle was broken. And that's the same casket that we took out of the ambulance at Bethesda Naval Hospital. Same casket okay. that we brought into the morgue. All right. All right, sir. I, if, if, thank you. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead and continue, sir. Say 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 again. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I did not mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to make that clarification uh, because yes, in, in, in your book, I, I know that there had been stories that oh no, a different casket, but it was the same casket that we took off the elevated truck and placed in the morgue, and that we took out of the ambulance at Bethesda Naval Hospital and brought into the cold locker room. All right. Now, so. while we were standing guard outside of the morgue. As I said, the only other casket that went into the morgue that night that we observed was the mahogany casket that the president was buried in. Now, while we were standing outside on guard, our responsibility was not to allow any unauthorized personnel to go into the morgue or to have any photographers get close enough to the morgue where they could snap photos. But while we were standing there, our lieutenant, Lieutenant Bird, came out and he asked us point blank, uh, do any of you guys want to go in and watch the autopsy? And, uh, for me, it was a, a, a quick no because I didn't want to, I didn't want to see, you know, the commander in chief laying on a table. But unfortunately, because we were on the doors, Admiral Berkeley, who was the president's Physician uh, was going into the morgue, and as we opened the door for him, I had an opportunity to look into the morgue and see the president from the waist up. And at the time, uh, it just appeared to me that he was asleep. It didn't appear that he, you know, had passed on. But one of the things that I noticed in that 10 to 15 seconds was that his head was placed in a, I didn't know at the time, but I found out later, was called a chalk block. Because once I became a New York City detective and had to go to the morgue to pick up evidence, I walked into the morgue one day and saw the same object that I had observed under the president's head at Bethesda Naval Hospital. And I, I asked the pathologist, what do they call that? And that's when he informed me that it was a chalk block. But getting back to, uh, to the, to Bethesda, um, there were a number of strange events that took place. One being the Air Force Chief of Staff, uh, his name was, uh, General Goffrey McHugh. He had brought the President's blue suit down 
that he was to be laid to rest in. And when he came out of the morgue, he was very disgruntled and kind of had an attitude um, as far as uh, what had taken place. And one of the things that, because we were curious as to what was going on in the morgue and when he came out, we, you know, we were inquisitive, but his uh, contempt was for Lyndon Johnson having made Jackie, the first lady, come up and witness him getting sworn in on Air Force One because she wanted to stay with the the casket back in the hole or back in the cargo area where the president was resting or was you know, lying, lying in the casket. Right. So that was some of the things that was going on that, you know, we never forgot. But once all that had taken place and they had uh, dressed the body, they had embalmed because ordinarily they don't embalm in the military. So they had to bring in, you know, private uh, funeral directors where the embalming took place because the first lady wanted him embalmed. But once all that was done, it was about four o'clock in the morning when we uh when they bought the mahogany casket that uh Lieutenant Byrd had to find a flag to drape over because anytime you have a military funeral or military remains, it's supposed to have a flag draped over it. And the fact that uh he was the commander in chief and a Navy veteran, um, that should have been done on Air Force One before he was even taken off, uh, Air Force One. So that kind of upset, uh, Lieutenant Byrd. But those are some of the little things that, you know, people really don't, don't know about or didn't hear about. But once we got the remains and we placed them back into the, uh, Navy ambulance, we all jumped in and, uh, took the motorcade from Bethesda Naval Hospital to uh, to the White House. And that was about approximately 4.30 in the morning where we took the remains of the president and brought them into the East Room. Now, while we were there, uh, the first family, uh, the first lady, Bobby Kennedy and other dignitaries came into the East Room where we had placed the president where he was going to lie in state and she wanted to view the body and Lieutenant Byrd was going to have us march out and she said no they can stay so we did an about face and the casket was open where she could view the body and once that was done you know the casket was resealed and we turned you know, back around to face the the uh, the remains of the president as they exited the room. We exited the room, and the death watch came in and took over. We had to stay there for a short period of time till the death watch came in. Now, the death watch is just you know uh, military men from all branches of service that stand around the casket to ensure that nobody touches or tries to do anything to the remains. So when we we left the remains, it was about 5 o'clock in the morning. We were taken down to the lower level of the White House where we 
I mean, because we had been up since six o'clock that morning, and we just fell out, fell out on the uh, on the beautiful purple carpet that was on the floor. So we were all laying on the floor waiting to find out how we were going to get back to our respective bases. All right. Wow. So, so that was one emotionally charged full day for you. Indeed. That, that was like a day and a half. Absolutely. So just to recap, um, you, um, and, and the, 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 I find this fascinating because what you said was, um, you, you were assigned to accompany the body of the president in the, um, uh, the casket in the motorcade to, from the airport to, to the hospital, uh, or right. to, we, we, yeah. well, we were in a helicopter, right? We were in a helicopter and to shadow the motorcade from Andrews Air Force Base to Bethesda Naval Hospital. But as we got closer, we sped ahead in the helicopter to make sure that we were in place when the motorcade pulled up. But at no time did the motorcade ever stop. Did it ever slow down um, before it got to Bethesda Naval Hospital? Okay. All right. But, but the um, where did the – tell me again, the, the somewhat of a chase, if you will, losing that ambulance or that ambulance – Carrying the, uh, uh, ostensibly carrying the, the, the body of the president, kind of attempting to lose you or whatever happened there, you losing sight of that. That took place at Andrews Air Force Base or Bethesda? No, no, that, that happened at Bethesda Naval okay. Hospital. All right. And what was, what was I really ironic about it? Because we were in the back of the pickup truck. It was cold in November and we couldn't figure out. We said, well, you know, we're bouncing around back there. It's very dark. None of us had ever been to Bethesda Naval Hospital before. So we, we were kind of lost, but the driver knew where he was going. <laughs> and we, at a point, lost the ambulance because it was almost as though they shut the taillights out. <laughs> because we could see, um, the ambulance as long as the taillights was on, but there came a time when it was almost as though they they cut the taillights off. Now, whether or not that was on purpose or whether they didn't want anybody other than us to follow them. But we made two passes around the hospital grounds. Now, if you ask me how long does that take, I couldn't really tell you. But on the third pass behind the uh, administration building where the morgue is located, that's when we came upon the uh, Navy ambulance. And uh, the person that was standing outside the ambulance was General Goffey McHugh, the Air Force Chief of Staff assigned to the President. All right. Now, at the time, aside from that, um, and your fatigue, obviously, and the emotions and such, did you have a feeling that something something really weird was going on, or, or was it, you know, just, well... I mean, stuff happens. Well, well, at at the time, the the only thing that we was really concerned about uh, was whether or not we were going to be interfered with again by, you know, uh, the civilians, and uh, whether or not um, there would be anything else that was going to take place 
that we weren't ready for. Uh, but initially, we thought that the ambulance took off because there were so many photographers there. And once Jackie and Bobby and McNamara exited the the ambulance at Bethesda, it was almost like uh, these photographers came out of nowhere and, I mean, started snapping photos. And we thought that's why the ambulance took off. Okay. And right. so that's why there was a little hesitation on our part to, you know, immediately jump into the back of the pickup truck and chase the ambulance. But once the lieutenant saw that the ambulance was not going around the back, we jumped into the pickup truck and started trying to keep up with the ambulance as not to lose it. But we lost it for about, I'd say, 15, 20 minutes. Some, some people, uh, and I'm sure that some of your viewers have read, uh, oh, they were chasing it for an hour, hour yep. and a half. No, it was nothing like that. It was 15, wow. 20 minutes. And it's wonderful to have a first-person eyewitness account, uh, 22-year uh, decorated a homicide or uh, an NYPD detective retired gold shield subsequent to all of this uh, as an eyewitness of, to, to this very historic event, very important event, and clarifying all of the the junk out there and uh, you know all these these theories and these ridiculous stuff that that's discussed now. Um, all right, so the your duties at that time contemporaneous to the funeral and such. You complete everything. Uh, is there anything other, any, anything else that's noteworthy, uh, with respect to, well, be, be before the Westmont meeting? I mean, I, 50 years well, past. There's, there's things that, you know, people don't know about. You know, the, the day before we were to remove the president from the East Room and take him to the Capitol, you know, the Capitol Rotunda, the Lion State, where the viewing was going to take place that that night before we uh we got a a casket and we went to the tomb of the unknown soldier at twelve o'clock at night and the lieutenant got into the casket and we were going up and down the steps of the tomb of the unknown soldier with the lieutenant in the casket because we were very concerned about you know the 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 width of the steps of the Capitol, and the casket weighed in excess of thirteen hundred pounds. And initially, there were only six of us, but once he was transferred from the bronze casket into the mahogany casket, we had to add two additional uh, military personnel because the casket was so heavy. Wow! So, so you you practiced as well. Given the fact it's winter time, it's it's cold, and and the, the weight of the casket, the the size, the dimensions, and all of that. Um, wow, uh, I, I'm not sure I'd want to be the that lieutenant, you know, in the in the in the box there. But okay, um, wow. Well, it was just it was just to add you know add weight and make it more realistic as to what we were going to be confronted sure. with. You know, and the steps at the Capitol are a lot. They're narrower than the steps at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And one of the things that we wanted to practice was one man on the step at a time. Because with the weight of the casket, if any of us had stepped on the same step, 
I, I mean, it would have been a catastrophe. Yeah, it would not have made for for uh, good viewing uh, or good no. memories. Yeah, no. indeed, uh, by no means. All, all right. So, so now, okay. So subsequent to this, um, the the funeral, the nation's grieving, the nation's healing, and of course, you you went on to become a detective uh, at, at NYPD and and so on. And it's after reading the book. And by the way, our guest is Hugh Clark. His book, uh, Betrayal, a member of the Kennedy Honor Guard speaks, which is a fantastic book and it's very insightful. Now, okay, so you got, uh, just judging by what I've read to date, you got a call with, um, you, you, well, you had a meeting. I guess we can go right to the meeting at, uh, meeting at Westmont. Um, kind of out of the blue, if you will, in, in, a, in, a, in a way. is are, are we to that point? Can we go there? And then, yes. Okay, yes. all right. Well, let me just say this there, that prior to that, you know, through the years, you know, I always told the same story in terms of what I believed had taken place or what I had witnessed take place and what I was a part of. I always told the same story, that this is what took place, regardless of what people have written in books, um, what was shown on TV, you know, the documentaries. Mm-hmm. And I never really paid that much attention because a lot of the stuff that was coming out wasn't true. And so I always dismissed it and really didn't pay that much attention to it. But, uh, in the, in 2015, I received a call from Philip Singer, who was a researcher out of Chicago, and he asked me would I be interested in having a reunion with other members of the casket team, at which time I stated, well, that would be great. I haven't seen these guys in 51 years. I mean, it would be great just to see them again, you know? And... uh up to that point, I had not heard or talked to any of the members of the casket team because the very next day uh, of the burial, that next morning, I was shipped out overseas. I went over to Europe not to return to the country again until I got out of the military, as as did some of the other members of the casket team. So we never really had an opportunity to say goodbye to each other. And so when I received a call from Phil Singer asking me would I be interested in coming to Chicago to meet with the uh, other members of the Cassia team, I was all for it. Mm, okay. So so you had a somewhat of a reunion in Chicago, Westmont, in 2015. That's only two years ago. So um, I imagine it. it, it wow. Well, Tell us about that, uh, what happened there, and ultimately what you found out, because we have about uh, about 17 minutes left of our interview, and I could listen to you all night. But, uh, again, the floor is yours. Uh, what happened at, at, at uh, that meeting and what you found out, and hence you're writing the book along with uh, William Matson Law entitled Betrayal. So what happened? Well, initially, uh, initially what happened was, you know, some of the members of the casket team um, showed up, and we were all glad to see each other. You know, it was almost 
as though it happened yesterday. But we were all hugging and, you know, wanting to find out where you go and what have you been doing. And unbeknownst to us, there were other members that were involved in the, uh, that night at, uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital. And those were Jim Jenkins, um, Dennis David, Jim Metzler, and, uh, a couple of other guys that were in the morgue that night. And what the researcher did was he had the casket team members tell their story in terms of what part we played that night. And then once we finished, he gave the members of the morgue detail an opportunity to tell their story. And it was at that time that it was like an explosion took place because they sat there for a minute or so, you know, not saying anything. And then all of a sudden they said, listen, we're not disputing what you're saying about bringing that bronze casket in to the morgue and everything. But a half an hour, 45 minutes before you guys even got here, the president was already on the table. The wow. chief here, who was Dennis David, received a call at 6.30 from somebody who told him, your package will be here. It will be in a black hearse. He took a silver shipping casket out of this black hearse, brought it into the morgue, placed it on the floor. The corpsman opened the casket, took the president's body out that was wrapped in sheets, and placed it on the morgue table. Now, we were still on the helicopter shadowing the motorcade from Andrews Air Force Base. While we were still on the helicopter, before we even arrived at Bethesda Naval Hospital, the president was already on the autopsy table. Now, as soon as we heard that, I mean, you're talking about 70, 75-year-old guys getting up in each other's face, uh-huh. yelling and cursing at each other, calling each other liars, and, you know, you're full of you-know-what. And this went on for about a good 40 minutes before the researcher stepped in and said, hold it, hold it, everybody calm down. Uh, nobody's lying here. You're both telling the truth. It was as though the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. And for me, you know, having been in law enforcement, I immediately went into interrogation mode. And I started questioning these guys like, you wouldn't believe like they had done something wrong because what they were saying was unbelievable. Because there's no way that Jackie Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, would have gotten gotten into a Navy ambulance with an empty bronze casket and rode to Bethesda Naval Hospital knowing that the president was not in that casket. So you can see why everybody was so upset by what we were hearing after 51 years. And people, you know, for whatever the reason, they, 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 they're in disbelief. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Because they want to know, well, how did the president's body 
get from the bronze casket into a silver shipping casket when we know for a fact that at Parkland Hospital, the president was placed in the bronze casket wrapped in sheets. Wow, okay. So whatever took place, took place on Air Force One, either in flight or when it landed. Amazing. All right, so, so we're talking in total three different caskets. You've got the, the silver shipping casket, you've got the bronze, and then the mahogany. Exactly. Yeah, very interesting. All right, and at the time, of course, you didn't, you in the honor guard did not know, uh, I mean, you only knew what you saw, but upon comparing notes in the meeting in Chicago, oh, wait, yeah, the perspectives are a little bit different. Um, it's not a matter of wrong information. It's a matter of perspective and uh, people knowing what, or people only seeing what they were perhaps meant to see or, or, um, so, so, so what, so what happened, do you think? I mean, and, and why? You know, as an investigator. Well, you know, let, let me, let me just tell you this. And the, this is directly from the individuals that participated in the autopsy. The individuals that were at the table, and specifically Jim Jenkins, who is a very intelligent individual. He's gone on. He's in the process of writing a book. And one of the things that he felt he found to be very odd is that, and I, and also I, I feel the same way, is that whenever there is a gunshot, you know, it always leaves trace evidence. It always leaves particles of the, of the projectile. They took eight sets of x-rays, eight sets of x-rays of the president's remain at Bethesda Naval Hospital and couldn't find any bullet fragments. That's number one. Number two, Dennis David, who was the chief of the day at Bethesda Naval Hospital, was told to take an individual up to the his office because he had a cryptic clearance. Cryptic clearance is the highest clearance you can get in the government. But he was directed to take this individual up to his office and type out this classified memo. While he was there, the individual who was in civilian clothes took out a vial and said, these are the bullet fragments that were taken from the president's body at the autopsy in the morgue. Now, Dennis David, not being in the morgue, just assumed that those were the fragments that were extracted from the president's body, when in fact, when in fact, no bullet fragments were found in the president's body during the autopsy. So where did those bullet fragments come from? We know the president was shot, but we did not find, or they did not find, any bullet fragments in the president's body during the autopsy at Bethesda Naval Hospital after taking eight sets of x-rays. So clearly, and I and I know this for a fact, having done homicide investigations, that there's always trace evidence. Right. There's particles left by a projectile once it enters the body. 
the body had been sanitized before it even got to Bethesda Naval Hospital. Wow. So you where you, this took place, yeah. I don't know. I can't tell you. But but he, here we are, folks. Our guest Hugh Clark just confirmed, based on his knowledge as a as an investigator, homicide investigator, NYPD Gold Shield, twenty two years, and also in the honor guard, being present at the time, at the time of the uh, when when JFK's body was at uh, uh, the the Air Force Base in Bethesda. Uh, it's in, this is incredible, obviously, but this confirms many suspicions and dispels other rumors. We've got about three minutes left, and I, again, we could talk to you for hours. I could talk to you for days, or listen to you, I should say, about in the three minutes that we have left. And I'm going to be promoting your book all over the place because I think it's an important read. But in the closing three minutes that we have together, um, you've got the floor. What what should people take away from your message here, and uh, what's going on, and and where do you think that? If anywhere, this this whole thing is going to go. Well, you know, in 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 the short period of time that I I really delved into this since going to that uh, initial reunion with with the rest of the men that were present that night, I also had an opportunity to meet uh, some of the people that were present on the mall uh, down in Dealey Plaza that day. Um, and one of the gentlemen, he was the gentleman, uh, that was there with his wife and two little kids. And he told us point blank, he said, there was no doubt in his mind. He was standing right beneath the grassy knoll. He said there was no doubt in his mind that he was watching the president as, as the motorcade reached him. He said there was no doubt in his mind that that kill shot that hit the president in the temple came over his head and he was directly beneath the grassy knoll. No doubt. Wow. There was no doubt in his mind. The other thing that I, I, I want people to really understand is that and this was straight from an FBI agent who was trying to get this case reopened. He told us, he said, he was also at Rosemont. Uh, he told us, he said, if they had allowed that body to be autopsied at Parkland Hospital where they had one of the best forensic pathologists in the United States to do the autopsy, they would have found out right then that there were multiple shooters. Mm. As as we have long suspected, but uh, again, the combination of your eyewitness testimony as an honor guard at the time, uh, obviously seeing, uh, being present there uh, at the hospital and at the uh, Air Force Base and Hospital, the your experience as a homicide investigator, all of this, folks, uh, leading leading us to the conclusion, obviously, that we we've known, suspected, I should say, there there is uh, multiple shooters, more than one, and of course, it's all documented in uh, Hugh Clark's book, written with uh, William Matson Law, called Betrayal: 
a member of the Kennedy Honor Guard speaks. And betrayal, indeed, a betrayal of a nation, betrayal of a president, uh, worse than that, I guess, but also a, a betrayal of you uh, and all of your your uh, the, the people around you. This, this is fascinating. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for your gift of time and, and for introducing us to to your book. Um, 30 seconds. Anything more that you want to add in the last 30 to 45 seconds here? Just, just to, just to let people or give them something to think about. If, if Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone shooter, if Lee, if there was no conspiracy involved, if nobody else was involved, then why won't they release all the classified data that they've collected? That's right. If if he was the lone shooter, if there was no conspiracy, if nobody else was involved, the American people have the right to know. Amen. And that's what I want. That's what I want them to think about. Mr. They he, have the right to know. In, indeed, we all do, and I think you've got uh, a special standing given your stature, given uh, your experience and what, what you went through, um, what you experienced as well on that day. So, indeed, we do. Hugh, Hugh Clark, thank you so very much, and please come back and visit with us. Uh, again, Book Betrayal, a member of the Kennedy Honor Guard Speaks. It's been such a pleasure. It really is. I, I, I told him before the interview, I'm kind of starstruck because it's like I've seen him on TV and I, he's been there for 50 years. Hugh Clark, thank you so very much. God bless you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Folks, that was Hugh Clark. I would urge everyone, get a copy of Betrayal, a member of the Kennedy Honor Guard Speaks. It's relevant to, to today. Release the records. And we should, we should, uh, have Donald Trump do that. Folks, you're listening to the Hagman Report, Global Star Radio Network, BTR. It'll be back. Stay right where you're at. Between the Veil, Daniel talks about a space between dimensions where supernatural beings can walk. He says that these novels are a warning from the Creator to His creation. Will war come to America? Will the world's economies collapse? Are we looking at increased earthquakes and volcanic activity? Will the United States fall into civil war? You can find all of Daniel's work at his website, DanielHoldings.com. That's DanielHoldings.com. All of these things and more are talked about in Daniel's books. To find out what's coming next, go to DanielHoldings.com. Worldwide demand is making coconuts one of the highest-yielding cash crops available today. Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many high-net-worth individuals have invested billions of dollars into coconuts for strong growth and solid long-term income. Yields could be as high as 18% or more per year. Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com or phone 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288 or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com. 
You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. At HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. Special guest this hour, of course. If it's Tuesdays, it's it's uh, Stan Deo's time. I just want to touch on the previous guest, Hugh Clark. Uh, if you didn't listen to that interview, I urge everyone to listen to the interview. You know, I, I I feel some days I feel like I've got the best job in the world. It's not really a job, but some days I feel so lucky uh, to to be able to speak with people like Mr. Clark. Uh, the history. And and I'm not kidding. I remember watching the uh, the funeral procession, and I remember uh, with my parents as as, as a child. And, and uh, uh, it's almost as if I it's almost as if I knew no Mr. Clark in a way. Uh, believe me, and, and I say that respectfully. He's an African American, and at the time, you know, to see an African American on that uh, on uh, carrying the, the body of the president, uh, it was remarkable. And um, seriously, the word "remarkable" fits here. But the history that is contained in the book "Betrayal"—it's it, it's an amazing book. I'm not quite done with it yet. This is one of those times when I didn't get finished with it, but I'm. I, I, I'm just intrigued by all of the information. I'm not, uh, don't want to take any time away from Stan Dale, but before we get to Stan Dale, uh, let me ask you guys, are you looking for that perfect business gift? The perfect business gift right now has been made simple by Omaha Steaks. It's, in fact, it's a, it's a, it's great to get, uh, it's great to give. It's great to get too. Send it to yourself, man. I'm telling you. It, it, the, perfect business gift is simple. It's simple to give and a joy to get. That's exactly what Omaha Steaks business gifts deliver. Did you know they have a whole section for this business gifts? It's it's amazing. They've got a huge variety from premium steaks to skillet meals, flexible gift plans for big and small businesses, personalized one-on-one service. They handle the delivery. This is great. I've, in fact, i because of the business we're in, sometimes you have to say that special thank you. And we do it with Omaha Steaks. And we do it very well. It's it's amazing how many people will call us and say, thanks, boy. I, what a fantastic idea. Uh, the gourmet uh, food gifts appeal to everyone. We've never had anyone say, ah, oh, you know, no, no. It's always been thank you. Gifts offer the unique home cooking experience. This is from a trusted brand 
uh, brand known for quality, and quality indeed. Folks, right now, you can experience for yourself what makes these business gifts so unique with an exclusive offer. Listen to this. Order the perfect business gift to try. Omaha Steaks. Omaha Steaks gift experience for yourself. Or send it, send it as a gift. Either way, it's the perfect business gift. And it includes, now listen to this, four five ounce bacon wrapped tri-tip steaks. Oh, they are delicious. And four four ounce Omaha steak burgers, four three ounce gourmet franks, two four ounce boneless pork chops, four three ounce kielbasa sausages, plus, plus free shipping and four four ounce caramel apple tartlets just for our listeners. And this is so important right now. This exclusive package is only fifty nine ninety nine. Folks, go to omahasteaks.com, type HH in the search bar, and choose the perfect business gift again. Visit omahasteaks.com, enter the code HH in the search bar to send or experience for yourself that exclusive gift package for only $59.99. You can't beat this deal at all. That's omahasteaks.com and HH in the search bar. With that, I just want to say, welcome, Stan Dale. Stan, thank you so much for joining us again this Tuesday. We made it through another week, didn't we? Boy, we did. And for us, we're dry. The rest of the country down south seems to be in strife, doesn't it? You know, uh, I was. <laughs> it seems like you were talking about the weather last week, and when we were looking at this, uh, what's going on, man? I mean, obviously. There's something strange going on. Uh, of course, conspiracy-wise, we could say, oh, well, it's, uh, you know, harp control the weather by the Russians, Chinese. Uh, certainly the Americans wouldn't be doing it themselves. But um, it, otherwise, we might look at the last two years of weather changes. And I'm not supporting Al Gore's uh, global warming stuff by human activity, but I have said all along, changes in the sun and the output of, of what's called, you know, it's um, uh, it's... Radiation factor, radiation factor, how much light in the various frequencies it puts out. This has been increasing in certain frequencies. Now, this has to have an effect on us as well as the other planets, but for us, how much that, that energy is absorbed as heat, um, and, you know, that generates a rather strange pattern in our climate. It's changing the climate at the moment. Um, for the last two years, our orchard and other people's orchards have been not uh, flowering correctly. They've been hit last year with a, a an early spring and then a you know a frost and then it killed the bud, uh, the blossoms you know. And then you didn't have very much uh, crop this year. In fact, last year also there was a lot of in Colorado they got uh, sun uh, burn. Uh, I forget the actual term of it, but it's, the sun comes up and it's hot on the south side of the trees and it causes the bark to burst and split around the trunk and kill the tree. And we lost five or six of our trees out of the orchard same way. But things are changing this year. I mean, it, it doesn't take me to tell you. Uh, extended summer, um, you know, uh, crazy spring. I mean, none of the trees out there, I'll take it back, two or three of them did blossom out. But the majority of them, you know, peach and, and the apples and things were just stunted, if any growth at all, and any blossoms. So this this year, the, the seasonal change is all skew with. Now, uh, it remains to be seen what happens between now and, and December as far as global weather. But this is a sign to me that there are great changes coming in the climate, which I've predicted now for 10 years uh, as the uh, solar changes intensify, that the heat engine that makes uh, hurricanes 
that makes uh, tornadoes and things like that, is going to intensify. And and uh, by intensify, I mean it's going to concentrate in certain areas more than others than it used to. Um, Florida, for instance, has another one or two hurricanes that may come its way and intensify. They're out in the Atlantic at the moment. But then in South America, I've been witnessing something that's not hitting mainstream news because we're, we're getting, like, iPhone uh, captures, video captures, and, and stills of um, uh, Uruguay at a port there and in Brazil and a couple other places on the east coast of South America where they thought a tidal wave was coming because all of the seawater just receded out to sea, way out. And they were showing, I mean, people were walking on seabed there that was, you'd think that there was a tidal wave coming because it all retreated. Boats sank down into the sand because they could no longer be floated up to the, the dock. And then on the west coast of South America, they're getting a larger, higher tide than normal and uh, a lot of you know, rainstorms and severe storms coming inland, pushing the tidal waters into the shore. It's almost like someone has magically tipped up the right side of South America and dipped the left side down so that, you know, water recedes on the right side and, and rises on the left side. I know that's crazy, but the only other thing I could think of was that the Earth uh, sped up a bit, you know, and I'm sure we would have noticed the length of day changing. So there's something weird going on that I can't put my finger on that's causing these these global uh, weather anomalies. And it's part of, you know, what may be uh, a steady state for the next 10 or 15 years. Uh, I, you know, so, St- Stan, you, if I can just ask you one question, and, and this is the first year I really, maybe it's the first time I've paid attention to it, I don't know, but um, it almost seems like, okay, this is August 29th. 2017. It almost seems like we're a month ahead. It almost seems like we're in September. We're having September weather, and it seemed to be that way the entire year. Yeah, and and, and where we live, Stan, you know, in the summer here, especially in August, usually August and then through the first few weeks of September, it's hot. It's in the it's humid. It's in the you know mid 80s. But what was would you say maybe Friday or Saturday? Last week, yeah, you know, the high temperature, we're talking, you know, low 70s, lows in in the low 50s. Yeah. And you can feel the change. It's almost like uh, the the onset of fall is here, and and we we are still in August. Yeah. Yeah, Well, here in the last, say, week, 10 days, we uh, monitor our stuff with an outdoor weather station here recorded in the computer. We've had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six out of... uh, 13, 14 days, six of those have been above 90. Um, wow. So it's still warmish. I mean, we're still running air conditioner day and night here. Um, on some of the hottest days around the 19th of this month, we noticed uh, peak winds up around 25 miles an hour here. So for us, it's uh, summertime hanging on. And rather than going into fall, well, take that back. we got one or two trees that are starting to produce yellow leaves now, but not, uh, you know, full fall foliage yet. So in contrast to what you're getting, we're still getting the heat. And Stan, I found this video of what you just talked about in South America. And ah, yes. The receding, the, the water were, okay, on the one side of South America, the water receded, like you said, and it's crazy. They show, you know, basically what looks like the bottom of a lake, uh, an emptied out lake, and, you know, boats just sitting on, on you know, no water around 
And then on the other side here, and I'm just starting to see this video of the massive waves on the one side. Do you think this has anything to do with the the weather system and uh, with Harvey and or weather wars? I've been reading a lot of of speculation that people believe that Harvey, you know, there's some sort of weather manipulation that was used uh, with Harvey. And maybe that has something to do with what's going on. And I just, I can't wrap my head around how that, how this would well, work with the water. Um, you know, uh, it is possible that since 1975, both the United States and Russia have uh, had agreements about not using certain things in weather warfare. And some of the weather warfare wasn't high tech back then. It was simply a matter of the Russians spreading coal dust over the Siberian snowfields to cause an early melt and temperature changes which would affect weather over the northwest of the United States. And I don't know what we've done in return, but certainly HARP, uh, I think, can ha- have an effect on ionosphere conditions, which uh, also affect, believe it or not, the the charges inside the Earth, what are called uh, telluric or Earth currents, that move thunderstorms. And by manipulating the conductivity of the upper ionosphere into pathways, it is possible to steer uh, thunderstorms and hence tornadoes and, and hurricanes. Now, it, it takes a lot of energy to do that and a bit of planning, but if you have the United States, say, doing it, and you have China doing it, and you have Russia doing it, unless they're all getting together and coordinating, their efforts are going to be uh, unpredictable because they're going to be interacting with each other. And uh, so, Lord only knows what that's going to produce and where it's going to manifest. Now, that may be something to do with that. I don't know. Uh, the only other thing I could think of, as I said, was a change in the rotational speed of the planet, slow, slow change in the going in the westerly direction, and perhaps the beginning of a, a more serious expansion phase of the planet, where like we're getting all these sinkholes. I don't know. I just got to confess, this has got me puzzled, and I'm trying to figure out an answer to that in a lot of different directions. Yeah, apparently this, um, they say August 11th, the... Uh Beaches mysteriously went dry in Brazil and Uruguay, and the, and as you said, pointed out they thought that it was a tsunami. But um, they go on to say that the water had receded further than everybody anyone had ever seen, and people who lived there their whole life said they'd never seen anything like this happen. And there's lots of speculation as to what could be upcoming, what could be the cause of this. Is it is it an earthquake yet to be seen? Uh, is it something like you said, Stan, where the Earth changed the the speed of the rotation or um, the axis that it spins on? Expansion. It's a that's a that's something pretty crazy. I know. Uh, Holly said the it is the last story on our webpage on the lower left about the. You can click on the the articles yourself, folks, and have a look. Um, it shows boats sitting on the semi wet uh, sea bottom uh, as they sank down, but. Uh, yeah, at this point, I think all we can do is suggest possibilities and start looking for facts that, that fit the pattern. Uh, the fact that we had a high-pressure area come in from the western side of the state and block and sit in one place and block that hurricane so it couldn't traverse, I mean, it locked it in over Houston. And the fact that that hit our major energy production down there in the United States, you know, uh, it, it, it just kind of speaks of something or- orchestrated. I, I have to feel that. Um, I don't know what it's going to do long-term for our oil prices, uh, but I suspect they're going to be up for a while. 
And the fact that Saudi Arabia has been sitting on oil production and a number of the other oil-producing uh, Middle East countries have been putting a lid on it, and there's not a glut of oil, and then suddenly our major production, you know, refineries and stuff get hit, uh, and the Saudis can now release their their, uh, their oil at a higher price. I'm waiting to see that happen. And that would then pour money into their coffers because of a, you know, a uh, an act of God that uh, destroyed, you know, uh, or at least damaged severely our oil production. There's just a lot of things that don't feel right about this. Yeah, there's um, definitely uh, some cause for for concern, and you know the amount of the rainfall totals in Houston and the surrounding areas are incredible. I think it was up to 52 inches, is what they said today. We and measure now, rainfall in feet. I, I, yeah. That's astounding. I mean, in Texas, give me a break. You know, that's just huge. That's more and, rain and, than they average in a, in a year in a year's time that they've received just since last Friday. And the levees and the reservoirs and rivers are set to peak in still another 48 hours. So the flooding threat is far from over, even though the rain seems to be moving out tonight. Yeah, and the other thing is that uh, hopefully that uh, this rain will move on and, and stop because they're pushing uh, one of the uh, the dams close to Bay City, which has the, a nuclear power plant there for Texas. Uh, pushing to the point where if it does overflow, it could flood in the area of the nuclear reactor, which would be potentially catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Don't need to spell that out for you except to say Fukushima. Yeah, well, we were looking at the, uh, uh, we were talking about this on the Daily Show, on the the geography of the reservoirs and the dams, and if they were to fail or break, what would what would that look like? And we got into a little bit of the history of these reservoirs, and they were built, I believe, in 1908, and there were no, there was no community around them. It was to hold the water for the community, which was uh, to the east, about 15 miles. Well, now Houston right. is the fourth largest city in the country, and it's very densely populated, and they have built, you know, massive subdivisions, houses, neighborhoods, and communities all throughout, right up into uh, the sides of those re- reservoirs. So yeah. when they design these things uh, for the to hold the water back all these communities were not there now they are there so if they do fail it would be catastrophic not only in the sense of the nuclear uh, plant that you're talking about but also the um, number of people that would be affected if that did happen well you know I made a joke to Holly the other day about well we can call that area Lake Houston now but there really is a Lake Houston suburb there quite a wealthy suburb very nice homes and golf courses and I was just watching on the news just before we went on air um, earlier today, they were filming people trying to get out of their own boats because the water level was now uh, encroaching up to just the bottom of the second floor levels of these beautiful homes. I mean, the golf course was, of course, just part of the the, the lake that's now formed there in "quote unquote" Lake Houston. Uh, it we're we're gonna it's going to be years getting over this. It's not just Houston's problem; it's America's problem. Boy. Mm-hmm. The the people are are you going to that have left and been evacuated, gone up into Austin, have gone up into San Antonio? I was talking to people in San Antonio that run our server, and they said, "Well, pray for us here too, because we're getting an influx of people too that are trying to, you know, find a place to settle down until they can go home." Fortunately, FEMA and, and President Trump have been on top of this. I can't believe that the the, uh, the fake news that are trying to 
paint him as a, a, a cold, heartless, you know, leader of sorts down there. When, you know, you can see it on the news clips live where he's consoling people, giving them a hug and saying, you know, encouraging the first responders. Uh, gosh, they've turned it into a political thing when this is a real problem to every person in the United States. You know, we talk about humanitarian crises. This is certainly a humanitarian crisis and of, of, of just unbelievable proportions. The um, And also what, the, you know, the water... What uh, the the, the, uh, uh, the I don't want to say toxins, but like I guess they would be they would be toxin toxins. There's What's a particular the kind of bacteria in there that uh, if it gets in a cut or you ingest it, uh, is it can be fatal. It's yeah. really bad, and it's going to be throughout the water. Is, is that the flesh eating uh, bacteria stuff that we've it, been seeing? After no, the, the I, I think exit? it had a different like a one letter name. Uh, you know the something bacteria. But uh, they said that yeah. people walking around in it uh, may contract it, and some may be symptomatic and some may not be. But because that water is going through sewers and stuff and pumping it out, I'd say that you have a cocktail of, of sickness there. And it's going to be there for some time because even when the rain stops and the flooding finally slows down, uh, the areas that have uh, straight pathways to the gutters that and go out to the, to the sea, they're, they're going to drain, but they're going to be pockets, you know, low-lying dips all through the area there around Houston that will hold water like a pond for weeks until it can evaporate. And there's a lot of clay there that holds it in. So th- th- we're just going to see this stuff. It's going to take months to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I don't know if uh, T.C. Joseph said this publicly or, or not yesterday or today when we were talking. Um, have we done anything to Israel recently? And I and I ask that question with all seriousness, given well, as far know, as I know, uh, the they have uh, Kushner's thing have been trying to get Egypt and Israel and the rest of them all together to form a Middle East peace treaty. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess in other days and times, and, and people in control, that might be a great idea. But it's so close to biblical prophecy that it's going to put the finger on somebody, that, you know, yeah. who it ratifies it and. Uh, I guess personally, I wouldn't like to be involved in that effort uh, to try to make a peace treaty that the Palestinians say will only work if there is, you know, a two-party solution, a two-state solution. Right. So maybe, maybe we're getting a warning. We better darn well pay attention. You know, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but there's this Indian Christian guy that wears kind of light orange robes, and a lady sent me uh, something about it here the other day. And I and I watched the uh, the video uh, that he gave back in, oh, at least three four years back. He was visiting Houston, and he was talking to a church down there. And he said, uh, "Look, uh, the, the Lord gave me a word about Houston that there's going to be a terrible flooding here and destruction." Uh, and uh, he said, uh, "He told me to warn the faithful to move out, move north now to avoid what's coming." And then he went on to say something about. Um, and of course, that's happening now. Then you want to say something about uh, the next of three judgments that's going to occur. Uh, I think it was in California first. There might be one in Florida, but the California one was of interest because he says that there's going to be a great earthquake. And I think he said Costa Mesa, which is just south of uh, of uh, L.A., I think it is. And uh, that worried me a bit because that's close to two fault lines that have been rumbling a bit, uh, one parallel to the San Andreas. And both of them, San Andreas and this 
other fall go down to Mexico um, to the uh, what's called the uh, oh, the their fault line, the Imperial fault line that comes up to meet the San Andreas, and there's a little river dip in or a lake in between those two that has been having small quakes underneath it. So we and, and USGS has given that area a 30-year warning, saying at at the outside 30 years, the chances are about above 95 percent you're going to get a severe earthquake. And it could be tomorrow, but it could be 30 years. And when they come out and start telling you this kind of stuff and you see the signs in the earthquake patterns and the changes, you know, in, in the weather, you got to wonder if the Lord's not putting his fist down on us and saying, okay, guys, pay attention. Here's warning number one, if you don't repent. And as a nation, you know, uh, uh, pray for, for forgiveness and turn from what you're doing to Israel. I'm going to hit you again. And, boy... We're not seeing that happen. We're not seeing the repentance across the country, so I don't know. I wouldn't like to live in Florida or California or on the East Coast. Yeah, a lot going on for sure. And um, many folks need, I mean, they understand that this Houston flooding is is one, you know, once-in-a-lifetime kind of storm, I guess what, what you'd call it. It's a it's an historic, catastro- catastrophic event, and we got to continue to pray that the, the worst is over. Um with the hurricane season. I, I think the worst is just starting because, by the way, it, it, and Stan, I, I'm sure um, it, when when it's all said and done, you know, most people don't have insurance against flooding, especially. Uh, do you know how they, many people down there didn't have insurance? 80% of the homes. 80%, yeah. And do you know that they're changing? Um, I saw this today. I'm going to look, try to pull up the article. Uh, insurance companies are changing some law on Friday that are going it's going to hurt people in Texas trying to file claims for their the flooding and I'm not sure exactly what um what was changed uh, I'm going to pull up the article right now and see if I can find it but um it it was pretty terrible to the way that it was okay yeah here we go from yesterday Texas set to impose new insurance restrictions as residents face damage from Harvey. As residents and businesses throughout Texas face devastating change, uh, damage from Hurricane Harvey, many will be, and i got to scroll down here, bear with me, many will be relying on their insurance providers to compensate them for their losses, but in a few days it may be harder to get reimbursed if the insurance company doesn't follow through. On September 1st, the new law will take effect in Texas that aims to cut down on a recent rise in insurance lawsuits regarding weather-related damages. HB 1774, uh, as the bill was known prior to becoming law, imposes a series of new regulations on lawsuits filed against insurance providers for nature-related events, including flooding, hurricane, tornado damage that residents are now facing in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. Like the church lady would say, isn't that convenient? Yeah. Or, no, isn't that special? I'm sorry. But yeah, isn't that very special? Nice for some, Hollywood would yeah. say. Yeah. Nice for yeah. some. But the two in ten having... Uh, only having insurance is I mean when you look at the extent of the damage it's um, amazing to think and hopefully like we've seen so far we will have the communities that come together to help each other uh, and, and help their you know fellow neighbors to get through this and I'm sure that will extend for you know the weeks and the months beyond this after the media leaves but it's going to be a regardless of insurance money or not it's going to be uh, a huge endeavor. Yeah. 
Can you imagine if you were in charge of trying to take care of the, during the catastrophe in the Houston area, and after, what the priority would be of what you fix first with, if you got enough money, but what things do you fix first? Is it communication? Is it uh, law enforcement? Is it rescue? It's a nightmare. I, I sat down and tried to figure out what I would do, and I ended up thinking, I'm going to have a cup of coffee. This is too hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, surprisingly, maybe even ironically, um, Texas, the, the the previous administration's government, uh, the governors, uh, put together a rainy day fund. And I'm not joking. That's what it's called mm. uh, for situations to to offset damage or to, to off, offset uh, damage from emergencies like this. So that's that's going to be rather interesting. I'm not sure if it's $10 million that they've got, which is a drop in the bucket compared to the, you know what they're looking at in terms of damage. But you're right. I mean, how do you triage something like that? Uh, I, it just uh, it seemed like everything is so interdependent, you know, and in such chaos when you can't get from point A to point B, like injured people to hospitals, you know, or, or if you have to use a helicopter, you can't get them all. Um, they're just a huge number of things to consider. And, you know, people have to just give everybody involved in the rescue and uh, rebuilding effort uh, kudos, you know, a hat tip, because they have got a horrific job ahead of them. Amen. Amen to that. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Go go. Yeah, go ahead, sir. Yeah, I know. We're, are we at break time yet, or we got a minute? For, no, for we, you, we're going to bypass the break. Okay. Um, what's the deal with uh, Pastor Joel Osteen? Uh, some saying he, he closed the doors, but they weren't locked or something, and didn't send out people to help. Uh, okay, did you hear yeah. any more of that? Yeah. Today, uh, he opened the doors of his church and has been giving out supplies from food to clothing. Uh, blankets and whatnot, but he was taken to task for closing the doors of his Lakewood church to uh, as a shelter, and he caught so much flack on social media that he turned around and opened it up today, last night or today. I'm not sure which one. Um, right, right. Well, that's... so and then they're trying. They're in damage control right now. Um, they're trying. You know, they they a number of news people went down there to interview and. Um, for what they're they're trying to pass it off, say you know Joel Osteen was always you know looking to help, but he was taking a considerable considerable amount of heat Monday for not opening the doors of the sixteen thousand capacity Houston church to flooding victims, but now the news appears to have been concentrated uh, to instead of smearing Osteen, making it seem like he's been doing this all throughout the storm. Well, where's that way, church he, located? Is it in the middle on high ground somewhere that would say, you know, that would have been a good shelter? Apparently, it's dry. Yeah, uh, it's it, a Lakewood uh, Church in Houston. I don't know where. Oh, in hold Houston on a second. It is. Are you getting another call? <laughs> okay. Okay, Holly saying it was in Lakeland and it flooded anyway. So, but then he's backtracking. Oh. But I don't think. Uh, yeah, she said he's already put mattresses in there for people. Oh, okay. boy. That's kind of a bad witness. You know. Yeah. But it's, yeah. Well, it was, a, it was a big a big issue on Twitter, apparently, over the last few days, uh, because he, he said he was not going to open the doors of his church, but then apparently uh, maybe was guilted into doing it. I don't know. i got to tell you something, okay? If I had a building that was dry, period, I don't care if it could house ten or a thousand or a hundred or twenty. If I could help somebody, I'm going to do that. And mm-hmm. you know, there was a woman. Um, 
a flooded neighborhood. She was open, she opened her garage to her neighbors uh, who were flooded. My goodness, do something proactive. Well, you know, he sp- said that the, him. The, he, uh, the Olstein denied that the doors were ever closed, and the church tweeted on Sunday that the Lakewood church is inaccessible due to severe flooding. Well, uh, gee, uh, I saw boats and, and helicopters and everything taking people to shelters. Why couldn't they take some there, regardless that's of the right. flooding? If it was up on high ground, that's it. Yes, yes, exactly. It doesn't. It just doesn't uh, sound truthful. But anyway, no, that's just no. me. Long and, distance. And, but, but, you know, all of this, everything that we're seeing today, isn't this indicative uh, to me over breakfast this morning with uh, with the guest and Joe and John? Um, it just seemed like all of everything that we're witnessing right now just seems, uh, I'll just use the term surreal, um, given all of the circumstances, given the uh, political, social environment that, that that we're experiencing certainly end times like yeah now there's something else too that's kind of oh last uh, three or four weeks that we've been seeing you know that the american navy has had four ships that have had uh, you know either a collision run aground or you know collision with another ship and lost lives and you know one accident like that you could say well gee that was unfortunate it must have been fog or something but it wasn't and I've been trying to figure out, going back through the news, to figure out what uh, could have done this. And if there were a way to hack the uh, navigation systems of these uh, ships, then they could be dead in the water while some other craft uh, or boat was shoved into them. Maybe its uh, navigation system was hacked as well. But it could also be that these tankers, the big ships that have hit our uh, naval craft, were controlled by somebody sympathetic to the cause who couldn't change course uh, allegedly in time, and the American ship didn't get out of the way. Now, what will cause that? Well, on the show images page, uh, images 43 through 45 and image 40 are looking at devices that we have, that the Chinese have, and the North Koreans have access to that shoot microwaves at a target. A drone can do it. A missile can do it, uh, and an aircraft can do it. You aim it at a ship, you aim it at a building, and you shoot these concentrated microwaves at the building, and it zaps all the electronics in it. it it's targeted, you know, EMP is what it amounts to. But it's microwaves, and that is the same result as an EMP in that it goes in there and shorts out the equipment, and probably isn't the best for the occupants of the building either. But anyway, uh, the the electricity is compromised by that. Uh, you can see that Boeing and Phantom Works and the United States Air Force all got together and tested these uh, missiles, these microwave missiles, by firing at uh, target buildings that they had out in the test range. But that's what they're telling you now. We've had them in the back room, must have had for some time. The Russians, they have claimed they have a technology that will disable naval destroyers, maybe, you know, uh, black out entire cities. Um, when Holly and I were on the Kitty Hawk as guests there, uh, the uh, aircraft carrier before it was decommissioned, they showed us that they could take one of their planes, a special kind of plane on board, uh, you know, a turboprop thing, they could get airborne, and they could be offshore of a major city, and they could block all radio communications, TV, and everything for that whole city from that one plane. Now, that was 
in the old days. This will not only block it, but take it down so it takes weeks or months to build it back up again. And since these Navy craft that were damaged were over in the Western Pacific and some close to the Korean waters, you got to wonder if the Chinese have helped the North Koreans by a little bit of skullduggery. I just think that it's just too coincidental. Yeah, uh, very much so. Stan, and I, while you were um, going through that, I just found a, a story on True News, which really is no fan of Joel Olstein. Right. And I found a, some an interesting story here on True News. Soros-funded groups fueled Joel Olstein's church story. And what this article goes out on to say, basically, is that... Um, Joel Olstein was taking considerable heat Monday for not opening his doors of the 16,000-capacity church in Houston. The story appears to have been concocted by members of a George Soros-backed group uh, for simply uh, trying to smear Olstein and the Lakewood Church. They go through a uh, timeline of events. Really? They say prior to the arrival of the hurricane, Houston storm officials set up a network of shelters. Lakewood Church uh, was not selected to house evacuees some point early in the storm event a member of indivisible usa a group funded almost exclusively by soros posted photos of lakewood church on social media claiming the church was closed the story went viral in the meantime the full brunt of harvey unleashed upon houston lakewood begins to experience flooding of its own in lower levels some employees of the church had to be evacuated themselves then it's occupied democrats It says, Occupied Democrats, another Soros-funded left-leaning group, says that the story is about the Lakewood church is faked, and that the uh, photos by the Indivisible member were picked up by the liberal mainstream media and began publishing their own news articles on the event with their own spin. And the article ends by saying, Here are the facts. Like nearly every other church in Houston, Lakewood church did cancel services Sunday. Church doors were never locked, and the few people who did come to the church seeking help were all provided assistance. So well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Try to try to bring down the Christian faith because of that. It does. It does. And uh, you know and look, I am not a a a, a fan of Joel Olstein, but I'm also uh, I just look, you know, all we want is the truth and and if if this was uh some crap that was manufactured by these uh uh, revolutionary communist groups, these Soros-backed uh, frauds and thugs, then they should be called out. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm angry about that. I mean, if people want to be critical of Joel Osteen, there's plenty they fine. can pick up on uh, and do that, but don't start manufacturing and making up false stories to make people look bad. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. Well, for Soros group to fund those things and those activities, does it does make sense because he hates American Americans and he hates Christianity and Judaism for that matter. Stan, if, 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 let me ask you something. I, I, you know, I really haven't looked into this. I don't know if uh, Soros is walking around the United States. If he's in the United States, why in the hell don't we have a? Uh, why hasn't he been indicted uh, by the Justice Department? Well, I don't I guess know. Maybe I don't he's know. doing what the what the global planners want. I mean, yeah. if I were a global planner trying to get the nations of the world to uh, kowtow into a one world government, I would think that the American public. You know, as independent as we are and have been for a couple hundred years, would probably be a thorn in the side of a new world order because you know, at in the beginning of uh, or toward the last thirty years of last um, century, there you know, in the nineteen seventies to two thousand, 
proud to be Americans, and, you know, America was on top. And now, of course, they're trying to drive us into the ground because they don't want the resistance that we would offer. They want our technology. They want our money, our assets, but they don't want us. We're a thorn in their side. So I can see how, uh, if Soros isn't part of the elite planners of this global world government, you know, the world government, then he is certainly being used by them. Yeah, no, and he, for whatever reason, whether it's true or not, <clears throat> he seems to be the the point of focus uh, and or uh, money backing for a lot of these groups, or at least as the, the face of that. And I'm sure there are many other uh, satanic global elitists that are funding these these organizations and these people as well. But he just, for whatever reason, is uh, is the face of this. And there are other countries have warrants for his arrest for war crimes. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a shame that you know these people are able to get away with what they they are they are able to, and he is the you know basically the only one that takes the blame. And he's everybody's favorite punching bag, well-deserved. But we know there are a network of other people just like him out there that are operating without that exposure. Yeah. He's the architect of chaos wherever he goes. Whatever country he sets his sights on, he puts that's division right. into it and brings it apart. And, and that's his intent here in the United States, obviously. And we, we have to, you know, I, I played some clips on my morning show this morning of, uh, uh, perhaps too many, but uh, uh, Keith Olbermann, resistance. You know, I, oh my goodness, you talk, talk about, about unhinged. Uh, unhinged indeed. That's uh, the favorite word they like to use to talk about Trump. You know, yeah. he's unhinged. But Keith Olbermann, I mean, that guy is, he's rapid. Well, uh, and to my surprise, I had kind of taken a poll, and, and not too many people heard, uh, heard his program, his YouTube, or his videos, I should say. Not YouTube's, but which, by the way, are I believe are monetized. Uh, you know, so yeah, yeah. You know, anyway, um, uh, so to, to listen to his to the the vile, vicious, venomous uh, words, it's just it's it's beyond comprehension uh, to some people. So anyway, yeah. yeah so Stan, I, know. I didn't mean to dominate, brother. No, um, that's all but, right. Um, so. While we're on, you know, um, quote unquote, natural events or catastrophes, uh, uh, slide thirty-seven uh, on my show image page: massive volcanic engine has just been found hiding under Washington State. And if you click on that picture, you'll get the, the, the zoom of the picture. You can see what the article talks about. Uh, they found this huge magma engine, like a. I don't know how many times the size of the of the Yellowstone it might be, but it connects Mount St. Helens, uh, Mount Rainier, Mount Adams, all kind of to the um, east and south of uh, Tacoma, but right close. And you can see uh, in the Mount St. Helens, you can see the little grooves uh, in the, the the terrain map running up to that, showing where the magmas flowed before and rivers have formed. But the, and if you go back to the the, the text there, massive uh, volcanic engine, and click on the text. It takes you to the article, and uh, it's a it's a good read. It tells you the size of the um, uh, the whole group of these uh, magma uh, chambers you see there. But they seem to connect. They don't know exactly how, but, but they they do connect underneath. And they think it's at least twelve, we'll say nearly thirteen thousand. Cubic kilometers, which would be about 3,000 cubic miles, with a volume of 2.6 times Lake 
Michigan of magma sitting underneath that area. So if we get some severe earthquakes and shaking from you know the Wanda Fuca plate offshore and from the Cascadia subduction zone, there's a lot of stuff to play with there that could come to the surface and you know either in the form of volcanoes or magma flows or, or both. It's uh, something to keep an eye on. Certainly not a good thing for real estate uh, salesmen in the area, I'm sure. <laughs> no, uh, probably not. Okay. Now, you remember, gosh, what was it, uh, probably a month, month and a half ago, I talked to you about a particular asteroid that was going to come in close to the Earth's surface, and yes. uh, NASA was going to, you know, try to deflect it with a little uh, test unit. Yeah. Shot. We talked okay. about this last, last week because we weren't sure, you know, if they tried to, to nudge it, you know, how, what would no, the likelihood that, that it could nudge it into Earth? Yeah, well, it's not the one that's coming, you know, this month. It's uh, on October the 12th. It's ahead of us a bit. So there's an article there that tells, you know, that their Planetary Defense Coordination Office at NASA is doing this, and it's expected to get no closer than 4,200 miles. But, you know, that's out there in the uh, outermost orbit of some of our uh, geostationary satellites um, and and, uh, communication. So anyway... uh, Click that article, put it away in your your email folder or something, and wait until October twelfth. If we're still here, you'll see what happens. I mean, that's I don't know why they had to test it so close to the Earth. You know, in my opinion, they should have tested something like that further out, like with this uh, the one in Image forty seven, the two point seven mile asteroid that will be like four million miles from Earth, you know, like thirteen times the distance of the Moon from the Earth. And they get all excited about that and tell you this is coming. You'll be able to see it with your telescopes. You know, wow. Uh, but uh, it, it's not as close as this one coming out over the 12th. And uh, I think that uh, I don't think they'll be able to move Florence. That's the one coming uh, shortly. Yeah. Um, so wait a minute. Just to be clear, the one on on October 12th is that the one that they're going to attempt to to launch? Yeah. Launch, not, or? Yeah. Okay. Not, the, not this big one. I mean, this the Florence could is possibly big. go wrong? <laughs> yeah. Well, we'd yeah we'd have another airburst over some major city like that happened yeah. over Russia recently. Yeah. Wow. Uh, mm. Yeah. I, I know we have to do this. We have to figure out a way to deflect these things, especially if they come in close and are undetected and are small, relatively small. Uh, you know, hundreds of feet rather than uh, miles. <laughs> the one that is coming now. It's, so far out that we won't see it again until probably 2030 or 2040, something down the line. That one, if it were to hit the Earth, would certainly hurt. Um, it takes one about 12 miles in diameter, traveling at the normal speed of these things, to push a continent like India up into China to form the Himalaya Mountains and cause the global flood of the Bible. So this is about one-fourth of that size in, you know, in, in diameter, but it would be less in volume. Uh, but still, it would it would uh, probably make nuclear winter and uh, hurt a lot for the planet. Okay. So keep an eye on that one. These yeah. are the two asteroids to watch. And, and another article, which was fun, was the scientists that have been studying um, Uranus and Neptune. Yeah, I just read and, this. Yeah, isn't that cool? They, they, it, it, uh, they think that the pressure in those two uh, systems and the, the constitution of the atmosphere means that it will make diamonds and it would be raining diamonds instead of rain on these planets. I mean, might be doing it right now for all we know, but uh, uh, I, I look at that carbon, oxygen, okay, uh, hydrogen. Okay, they're making these these huge uh, pressures.
miniatures form uh, a crystalline substance, which is diamond. I just thought that was amazing. Oh, look, I'm going to run over to Uranus and, and go into a diamond store and collect a bit of stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could make it real diamond from my Oh, he says you got to say Uranus because nobody wants a diamond from Uranus. <laughs> 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 I'll pay that. That's good. <laughs> uh, yeah, Stan. How did anyway, anyway, uh, I had to keep I had to keep my mic off. You know that, folks, right? Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> what do we? Uh, what are some household ways I can uh, make diamonds in the comfort of my own home? Yeah. Is that possible? Uh, you know, there have been discussions about this uh, using um, electric charge and uh, uh, forcing the electrons to reach a certain velocity or our ions, in this case, of the, of the carbon. Uh, the best they've been able to do, I think, so far is make very, very, very microscopic diamonds uh, by increasing pressures in various labs with uh, techniques. But at home, you're more likely to be able to grow emeralds and softer crystals, not quartz, that uh, don't require the compression that diamond does. Uh, I'm pretty certain from what studies have been made uh, in the kimberlite uh, pipes of uh, South African dimes, uh, mines, is that they are reaching down into the the craton that supports uh, like South America and the United States. Each one of them has a, a pedestal, you know, like a column they sit on, a pillar. And it's uh, heavily compressed, and uh, there is reasonable thought that the deeper down you go, with, like, like with the Kimberlite mines in South Africa, you'll find bigger diamonds because the pressure increases. So that if we just mine further down, we'll be able to get a lot of big diamonds, and of course they kill the diamond market. And for sure, if we have space travel to Uranus and uh, you know uh, Neptune, uh, they could harvest a lot of these, which would be probably smaller industrial diamonds, but still it might you know impact the the value of diamonds when you find that they're just as common as, as rain, except on those two planets. That's uh, that's pretty inter- that's pretty interesting, uh, to say the least. I wonder, you know, we, we uh, really don't know much about outside of our solar system, but you have to understand some of these other, you know, how big our universe is. It's incomprehensible. I wonder what other planets and, and ecosystems of their own kind uh what we see on, on other unknown planets. I bet there's endless possibilities out there. Uh, I bet there might even literally be a planet that rains cats and dogs. Uh, we have one that's raining diamonds. Who knows what's out there? Uh, uh, I hear you. Yeah, I know. That's the, the great joy of the, the, the exploration of the unknown. Um, yeah, Holly says yeah. she'd prefer to live on a planet and stay there, but, uh, of course, I'd like to travel, get out there and see it all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how long until we get our, uh, you know... Uh, spaceships, light speed spaceships, where we can, uh, you know, go tour the universe. Well, you know, I I've written about this a number of times. Um, in in fact, I've started putting some educational, very short video clips, a minute or two, uh, on my YouTube channel about experiments with water to show how you can create a warp field ahead of a craft in the water, in the air, and in in the future in space itself, which is not a vacuum. It's really a very fine sea, a fine structure sea called the ether sea, or they call it black dark matter or dark energy, uh, but it behaves like a fluid, a very dense fluid. And the, the secret is that you can produce whatever propulsion you're using. You can use propulsion that doesn't go out the back end of your craft and push you forward. That's called um, uh, symmetric propulsion, where you have equal and opposite reaction uh, to the thrust. 
thrust, but this is called asymmetric, one-directional thrust, and you follow the thrust. And that means if you can push out this uh, extremely high-speed stream of whatever you're using to push the, the craft, do it ahead of the craft so that it curls, hits space at high speed and bounces off space because it's traveling so fast. It's called an inertial wall. It bends around into your intakes and, and recirculates like a, like a smoke ring surrounding the craft. And it's uh, surrounding the front part, and in some cases you want it to surround the back part as well, but the front part reaches out way ahead of where you're going and creates a low-pressure area in space that you're pulled into. And it forms a wall of inertia from your speed, and the faster you go, the heavier and stronger that wall is. And you can equate that to Star Trek's shield. So they say, shield's up so they can't shoot us. It, in this case, if you were traveling from here to somewhere else, even within our solar system, and you're traveling at high speeds like this, it would bounce rocks and debris and small stuff that would normally just put a hole in your craft. It'll bounce it around you and out to the side because you're breaststroking at high speed through the fluid of space and kicking these things out around you and behind you. And they'll, they'll actually be placed almost where they were before you hit them because the, the force field comes around and, and drops and hits a high pressure behind your ship, which pushes you forward. Uh, I, I liken this to the, to the, uh, new cowboy in town going into the saloon and the saloon's packed I mean really packed and uh, he has two options he can just shove the door open like the bad guy in the movies and push people out of the way and he will meet resistance because people won't like to drink spilled on a moon pushed for him to get into the, the, the bar the saloon but if he puts his hands on the doors of the saloon and says hey guys excuse me a second can you make a hole for me and let me in so I can get to the bar no problem, no resistance. He gets in, he gets his drink, and everybody's happy. This is entrainment, uh, where you you create a hole for you before you move into an area, and you do it so that nobody is really disturbed too much. And that's this kind of propulsion, more propulsion. See my, my YouTube uh, videos, as I say, they're short, and they take you on a little uh, trip in, in my water test tank here at the house. And uh, it shows the different uh, results you can get from a water nozzle on your hose. Certain kinds of nozzles do better than others, but it explains and shows you how that works in water. And that is the very basis of warp propulsion and of the first design I made for a flying saucer that got me recruited into a Dr. Teller's program. Yeah, you, you've talked about this and actually showed, um, you had on your show images page in the past some, some uh, graphics and diagrams on how scientifically how that would work and, and that stuff is pretty pretty fascinating and way above my uh, pay grade and IQ stand no Maybe it's not I tell you what if you've ever been out and having to water the lawn you know and, and the plants and stuff and you got a sandy soil in fact it work in dirt but normal dirt but sandy soil and uh, sandy loam for instance and uh, like I did um, you're out there and you're you know, you have to do it. It's your job. you got to water this stuff. And so you're letting the hose kind of drift down toward the plants. And the, the the ground is soaking wet there. And you notice that when you put the nozzle down into this wet sand, whoa, it's, the nozzle's not kicking back with thrust anymore. It's being sucked into the dirt and tunneling into the ground. That's simple. But okay. figuring it out why, it's just a matter of drawing it out in pictures in your mind and saying, well, I push into the sand. Why is it pulling me in? Well, you'll find that when you put it in the water yourself, you'll see that it forms this curling smoke ring, if you wish, but it's really a curling water ring that looks like a, a smoke ring. And it, it sucks you right through the sand. And if it'll do that in sand, 
it'll do that in space at high speed with a lot of small debris traveling at you know super relativistic speed uh, speed can, to you. Yeah, I can under, I can understand that. And well, that, that's a that's a good picture you painted there. And you can do this yourself. You can take a bucket of water, for instance. You know, a three or four gallon bucket of water. Put it out there, fill it with water. Put your hose on. Well, spray kind of at about a forty five degree angle spray. Hold the hose back about two or three foot from the nozzle so that it's kicking back. You can feel the thrust of the water coming out like a rocket. And just touch the tip of that nozzle where the spray is to the surface of the water. Just touch it, and it will suck it right out of your hand, straight down toward the bottom of the uh, the, the tank of water. Then try it. Come with your, your hose on full blast, you know, uh, solid core stream coming out of it. Hold it the same way. Push it down against its thrust till it touches just under the water, and zip right to the bottom. It will go. Now you say, well, yeah, that's because it's hitting the wall of the of the uh, the tank or the little you know bucket you've you've uh, put the water in, and it's curling back up around, and, and that's what's sucking you in. But what you haven't put together, if you say that, is the last time you were on a boat in the lake or the river, traveling at about I don't know twenty twenty five knots. You put your hand in the water, it's not friendly. It hurts. It'll rip your arm off. It's hard when you move fast against the water. And that's that means that the water becomes like the wall of a bucket. The faster you hit it with that stream ahead of you, the more it's going to reflect that stream back around you and form this, this envelope around you that is breaststroking through the water. And that's when you see that, you'll understand. It's not just the bucket. It's the inertia. Pretty interesting, Stan. We uh, only have about a minute left Boy, that before, we, uh, yeah, did, before we uh, run out of time, Stan. Anything that we didn't get to that you want to touch on or closing thoughts? Well, I'm looking at Louisiana on last week's picture I had up there, uh, slide 41, Louisiana shrinking. And it shows uh, the kind of black area of the known you know, above water parts of Louisiana, but it also shows how much we've lost in the last hundred years. With uh, Louisiana sinking, you know, it's being eroded down into the Gulf of Mexico. And I was thinking, well, they're getting another storm and another bunch of water is going to flood. I think they're going to have to change the map of of, uh, Louisiana again because they're going to see more erosion there. It's unfortunate, but I I do think that uh, they're going to lose more land area. It would be interesting to read the article and see what I'm talking about. Uh, They... They say that every map of Louisiana is a lie because the technical boundary runs out into what would uh, almost be international waters, but it's not. It's the, the state borderline is out underwater. That's kind of spooky when you think about it. Yeah, uh, it is, and I know that New Orleans already had four and a half inches of water as of yesterday, and expecting yeah. three to four more inches. And yesterday we saw reports of southwestern Louisiana already getting uh, very high floodwaters and reaching into homes waist high in some areas and it looks like it's only going to get worse with this um, storm moving through, you know westward north northeastward and through Louisiana but um, you know it'll be interesting to watch keep these people in the south in your prayers as the flooding threats are far from over with the rivers looking to peak in a few days Stan thank you so much for coming on thanks brother you bet guys we appreciate it. You have a good week. You and Holly. Well, Lord Tell willing, we'll we see you next week. All right. Bye-bye. That'll do it for us tonight, folks. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, have a great evening.